Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We love having you here, and it's our mission to bring you all the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we're going to show you how. Now, now, let's get started. Chris from Morales, and uh, <laughs> uh, my job is GDN. <laughs> um, I am the current president of our RSO. Um, if I, I, I am the the director. Uh, if there is a game, odds are I am directing it. Um, I do maintenance on all of our equipment here. In inventory that was me this summer. So fun. Um, I co- helped co-write uh, GDN AP with Kennedy Patterson. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do I not do? So my name is Kennedy Patterson, and I am the acting vice president, producer, director, and training advisor. Uh, my name's Daniel O'Keefe-Reed, and my job here is treasurer for RSO for G- Grizzly Digital Network. My name is Jacob Caswell. I operate the cameras for Grizzly Digital Network. Uh, my name is Armand, and I'm a camera op. Uh, my name is Alex Novak, and I am camera op. Uh, my name is Zach Hicks. Um, I don't really have a specific set job. I kind of do a lot of everything. I do the camera. Um, I produce sometimes. Uh, I work the DSLR for highlight videos. kind of just do a lot. Technology is my passion. I mean, I'm an IT major. Um, I, everything, I get paid to watch and produce sports. Like, how, how would you not just love it here and the environment and the people, everything? It's just awesome. I like working here because we're building something special for athletics. We're trying to uh, learn our career fields in the production world, and we're able to expand that more uh, at a student level um, here in the organization. Uh, the environment, the people, I'd say it's the first time I've gotten my hands on a technological job. Um, but it's the first time I've been able to work a job that's not been retail fast food or anything like that and actually within my major. I enjoy the filmmaking aspect of filming sports. Why do I like working here? It's just a fun experience. I like working here because uh, since I'm a freshman, it really opens up to new opportunities to the school. Honestly, it's because of the people and the environment. It's really, everybody's really cool. Um, same answer, really. I mean, every everyone here, the environment, the people, and, and, and the chance to work with equipment that I would not have the chance to work with uh, otherwise. I mean, just the sheer price of some of this stuff is astounding. My favorite part is the food. I'm just kidding, no. My favorite part is really getting to know the GDN members and seeing that we all work together in an environment to produce something very special. And I really do like it when athletes, they look at our work and they say, hey, thank you for doing this for us because not many schools are doing what we're doing. Um, I'd say my favorite part would probably be being able to work with cameras and the production of actual uh, cinematography of athletics in general. 
I think just the memories you have with like people on crew, like the things that like the director or producer might say on camera or like off camera, just like the vibe is just great. I think it's the experience that I get. Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, I want to be in LSTC for GCPS. That's a lot of letters. For those of you who are watching this, um, that's basically um, the IT guy at a school. Uh, GCPS is Gwinnett County Public Schools. And uh, they have one or two classes that they teach students. Um, and then every other period in the day is you're fixing tickets for and getting paid to fix computers. It's awesome. So what I want to do after graduation, I want to, of course, graduate and get my master's degree, but really be out there in the production field. My bucket list is become a producer and director um, to big Hollywood films, but as of right now, working for CNN is not too bad to hear. Uh, I'd like to work for a tech company um, because my major is network security. I'd like to be able to work for any company that could take me for that. I hope to film uh, movies. Uh, I want to be a famous director, but for right now, if I could just do music or like film or try to do both at the same time, it's like open air. Uh, after graduation, long time from now, but uh, going into sports management. I'm not entirely sure yet because I don't know which direction in film I want to go in yet, but I definitely at some point want to open my own production company. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Grizzly Growl Show. <laughs> Was not expecting that. We've got a great show for you. Plenty to roar about from the ITA Oracle Cup in Rome, Georgia. We've got head coach Chase Hodges on today's episode. <laughs> looking forward to that. Also looking forward to GDC Baseball playing in the latest segment of the Guess Who game. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first, we have some exciting news as GGC Athletics is delivering Christmas early to Grizzly fans all over the world. That's right, we have wrapped and delivered a brand new app that you can download for free. Check it out, go to your latest app store to both Google and Apple, it is available. Download it, thumb around, have a good time. We're so looking forward to all the fun features and interactions with you and the upcoming season. This will be the place to get the latest information, updates, and of course, my favorite, live broadcast. That's right, live broadcast coming to your mobile devices and tablets. Download it today for all the fun interaction for what is going to be a jammed, packed spring season. Don't go anywhere. We'll have head coach Chase Hodges coming up next on the Grizzly Digital Network. This is the view from the Grizzly Soccer Complex, home to both the men's and women's soccer programs at George Gwinnett College. The state-of-the-art playing turf provides an outstanding surface for elite-level competition. The on-campus facility features laser-graded technology, an advanced drainage system, and team dugout-style seating. The Grizzly Soccer Complex hosts not only two top-notch soccer programs, but conference and national tournaments as well. For more information on our first-class facility, visit our facility page at ggcathletics.com. 
welcome into Studio 5. We have a very championship-worthy guest here with us today from GGC Men's and Women's Tennis, Chase Hodges. Chase, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Are you uh, you recovered from Rome? I mean, that's that's a no. long three-day grind out there in the sun. Yeah, it was a grind. I mean, we uh, we left Thursday and, and got back late Sunday, so you kind of use Monday as your uh, recovery day. And here we are Tuesday, feeling pretty good. We have you on record previously yeah. saying that Mobile may be your yeah. your favorite city outside of Atlanta, right? Because of the success the Grizzlies have had, you've joked about buying a vacation home down there yeah. whenever you yeah. retire, absolutely, uh, because you love it so much. It is. Do you have place. a second favorite city? Second favorite, um, I mean, Rome, Georgia is creeping up. It's getting it's up, creeping there. up. Because I mean, Rome's just a great spot. I mean, it's a uh, if you haven't been there, it's one of the best tennis facilities in the country. Um, Nice city, uh, close to GGC, so um, you know. Hopefully, they'll continue to hold that event there. Um, we've been very successful, and uh, I put it as a distant number two, though. Mobile. Ooh, distant number two. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Mobile is like a heavy favorite at one. Rome, distant, but it is second. Well, for the average consumer out there yep. for for tennis, this is probably the most confusing thing. Sure. For them to understand is the difference between the fall season yep. and the spring season right. for our athletes in your tennis program. Explain that to me. Well, biggest difference is fall is all about individuals. Uh, it's all about singles national titles and doubles national titles. Uh, as a tennis player, your uh, team season is January to May, and that's when you're competing for GGC. You're trying to beat other teams. You're competing, competing for that team national title. In the fall, it's really uh, individual-based to get you ready for the spring. Um, but it's a great opportunity to kind of prove your worth as an individual for the team in the fall. And I think it's fantastic that you can look at it from the sense of you could be the best tennis player in the nation. Right. But if you're on a bad team, right. you're never going to win the team national championship. So yep. the fall and what the accumulation of Rome is, sure. you can represent your school and yourself and you could be crowned a national champion. Correct. What does it say for GGC Tennis that you guys are able to compete in both seasons and win national championships? Well, that's the goal. I mean, we're, we've been fortunate. Uh, typically, when you have really good players um, on your team, then you're going to be solid in both, and we've been able to do that. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we just want to keep racking up those national titles, whether it's team or individual. They all count as a national title. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to play for. Uh, each individual, when you come to GGC, and you go to practice every day, you can see the banners of all of our national champions and singles and doubles. Um, you see those banners dedicated to them, the photo banners as well. Uh, so every player wants to get on, on that, uh, at that facility on the, on the fence there to be able to kind of showcase themselves. So uh, the motivation is definitely high to be able to get one of those. And we have a new face to add yep. um, down at the GGC tennis facility. Yep. Maria Genovese wins the women's singles individual NAI national championship. Yep. Describe her journey just a little bit because she was new to GDC last year, but now in the fall competing in individual, it started all the way back at the South region championship. Explain yep. that progression to the picture everyone sees in her holding the trophy. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I got to give credit to you guys. I mean, I think it was her being on this show. I mean, I really think that set her up. The queen uh, of the South. To win this thing, really. I mean, because once you got her on the show, I think that uh, – you know, that basically gave her momentum heading into Rome. But, you know, her journey here has been phenomenal. She came from uh, Tyler Junior College where she won an individual national championship at the JUCO level in singles. Um, she played there for two years, arrived at GGC last fall, um, and basically 
um, made it all the way to the finals in singles and doubles in Rome last year. Uh, ultimately was unable to get it done, so she had a lot of motivation, uh, looking for a bit of redemption heading into this fall. Um, this fall she was um, more than ready once she got back. Uh, she played a great regional and, and got great competition from teammates and then really set the tone for Rome. And she went in as a heavy favorite, which is always difficult to do. It's difficult to go in as the one seed, and she went in as the one seed and, and got the title for us. And she becomes the third women's singles national champion in GGC history. We have Valeria Poda in 2015, uh, Madeline Bosniak in 2018, and now we have Maria Genovese in 2020 with number 29 as, for the program. Um, we, we, we highlight here in, in Valentino Carantini, yep. um, he, I'll, I'll get to my point in a minute, but describe what he went through this weekend competing in both singles and doubles and, and advancing pretty far in both brackets. Yeah, I mean, Valentino, um, you know, he made the finals of singles. You know, he was one match away from bringing home a national title. Uh, we're talking about a guy that wasn't in our singles lineup last year. Really a phenomenal story. He's always been one of our best doubles players. Um, him, him and Benassia advanced to the uh, semifinals and nationals and doubles. Uh, Valentino's had a tremendous fall for us. Uh, obviously, we have a good amount of guys that are going to be returning in January, but uh, Valentino really put together some really impressive results in our regional to qualify for Rome and then really uh, played extremely well in the, all the way into the final um, and ran into a hot player in the final. So give credit to, to his opponent. But at the end of the day for Valentino, this was a, a huge experience for him from a confidence standpoint. And it's big for our team because I really feel like heading into the spring season, he's going to be really a staple in our lineup now. He's kind of established that tone. And uh, he's going to be a really, really tough out regardless of where he plays in our lineup. So uh, this fall was major for him from a motivational and from a confidence standpoint. And if Valet made a name for himself, yeah. describe what Ava and Maria did in women's doubles because they didn't even know each other three no, months ago, much correct. less almost win a doubles national championship on the women's side. Put their accomplishment in perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, they basically were a couple points away from, or two points away from winning a national championship. Twice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was a, a situation where uh, that match really, you know, could have gone either way. A couple points here and there go our way. I think that we win that match. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you talk about a team that really has no experience playing together. I've uh, only played really two tournaments together. And for them to put together that type of run bodes really well for the future. And I think that uh, as they get more and more experience, they could be a favorite in that event in the future. So uh, just really proud of their effort. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those where Abba is a, a freshman. She hasn't been here too long. So incredible experience for her. And, uh, you know, I'm all about the spring. Um, so for me, it just only is going to make her tougher out in the spring uh, once we get to the dual match season. Yeah. Um, so season not over for, for all the Grizzlies just yet. Correct. But while I have you sitting sure. here, I, I want to get the, the people a little yes. fired up for the spring. I know it's, okay. I know it's for still, was October still? Yeah. But, but let's not forget the nation's longest winning streak still resides in Lawrenceville. That's 123 right. victories in a row for men's tennis. Yep. I believe we're still the the defending COVID national champions. I mean, when the when COVID hit and they canceled the season, we were still number one in both polls. We, when you look at the polls, when COVID hit, we were ranked one. Are you are we are you claiming on this show today that we're the 2020 national champions in the NAI? I love how you do this. Um, 
Why not? Absolutely. Sure. Call Absolutely. Doug. Let's put it on I mean, the list. we were ranked one when COVID hit. Um, well, the COVID national champions. Why not? Why not? So, men and women. So, what's, uh, what, what are we looking we'll for? Will you give little, me that banner? Spring. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get you one. What's it going to look like? Uh, duct tape and Sharpie. Is that there what? There you go. Is that there pretty you go. good? A little mask on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. That'll work. It's good stuff. Um, no, but heading into uh, spring 21, I feel really good about both programs. Obviously, uh, We'll start with the men since you referenced the win streak. Obviously, 123. We got to keep this thing rolling. Um, we got some good, um, really high level players that are going to be joining us in January. We have some returners that are going to be joining us uh, back in January. We have our, our, our guys who were successful this fall. So we have a really good makeup of talent. Uh, for me, it's just really going to come down to you know how hard are these guys willing to put in the effort? How hard are they going to work? Because you know, I think there's a couple teams that are, um, you know, going to be in the mix. So really, it just comes down to preparation, who's working harder, and who's really, who really wants it more. Uh, because you can't really put a uh, measure on hunger in terms of how bad you want it. So uh, my biggest thing is, um, you know, it's sure we've had a lot of success, but we got to keep this thing going. Uh, as Neil Hodges, my dad would say, as, as soon as you get fat and happy, that's when you get beat. So I'm trying to uh, take that, you know, mindset out of our guys and. For the women, um, man, we were really, really good last year, um, and I know that uh, COVID hit, but you know, I felt like we were. It could have been one of maybe the best team we've ever had in, in women's tennis history. Um, we are able to retain a good, good amount of those female players, and we do have some really, really good ones coming in. So, I'm, you know, ecstatic about our women's tennis program and what we're going to bring to the table. Um, you know, I think the future is really bright. We're going to have some young players coming in. They're going to be really competing for a top six spot. Uh, obviously, not everybody's going to be uh, happy because as a coach, you know, you may have eight or ten on the roster. Not all, all of them can play. But I feel like we're going to have a, a really good team dynamic where they're going to be competing uh, within themselves to break into that lineup. And sometimes that's the best type of mentality you can have as a team in terms of, you know, kind of battling with your teammates to make that lineup. So uh, I think that We'll force each other to get better, and uh, I'm excited for both programs. Well, we're certainly excited about the spring and seeing all the Grizzlies back in competition down at the GGC tennis facility. But before I let you go, I I, I think people have been watching this interview for far too long, uh-huh. and they have to know, Chase, I mean, where did you get the shoes? I mean, is this just a coincidence? Uh, what did shoe? we go we... shopping together? Like, what what is the deal here? Are we talking um, about these? Yeah, yeah, the shoes you have on there. Yeah, well, these are called the Mahoney Twos. <laughs> um, the Matt Mahoney Twos. Uh, no, I'll give Matt full credit, and uh, they look phenomenal. They look better on me, but they look phenomenal on him. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, I love these shoes. I actually have two pairs. I love them that much. <laughs> two pairs? Yeah, I The do. same color? Uh, same exact shoe, which I'm planning on having for a very, very long time. <laughs> Um, there, there is some degree of practice versus match play in terms of switching them up a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's smart. Yeah. Keep, keep the game day ones fresh. The, the ones that I don't wear as much, maybe bring out for like really big matches. Yeah. And for I, the, I these think, are kind of more daily wear. I th- someone mentioned to me and I, I shot it down pretty quickly. Yeah. You, you've heard of the, 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 the negative phrase the stolen valor. Uh-huh. This, is, this isn't stolen swag by any no, stretch of imagination. No, not at all. If I get to sit next to or go shopping with or happen to have any apparel that's similar to a 29-time national well, champion, I'll share that swag all and I, Well, I also will say I could have easily said I had these before Mahoney, but, you know, I'm an honest guy. These are the Mahoney twos. 
The new ones that I have, they are not the Mahoney threes though. Oh, just so you know. yeah. So you're gonna step your game up even more. Yeah, I absolutely. like it. I can't wait to Absolutely. see it. We can't wait to see the Grizzlies. Coach, thanks for coming by. Thanks for everything you guys do. Go Grizz. Go Grizz. We'll take a break here on the Grizzly Growl Show. We'll come back with more from Studio 5 here on the Grizzly Digital Network. A grizzly bear can lift a thousand pounds. So when someone tells you to be strong, be grizzly strong. We've got a classic battle out on the diamond. It's pitchers versus hitters in this week's edition of Guess Who with GGC Baseball. All right, welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Grizzly Growl Show. We're here with GGC Baseball in the newest game, Guess Who, sweeping the nation by storm. We've got the new law firm known as Hunter and Hunter, Dollander and Caldell. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Great. Awesome. Are we are we excited about this? Are we, are we, am I looking at the winning group right now? Of For course. Sure. What's what's the over-under? I mean, we can we get more than 20? We're getting at least 10 more than them. To, oh, we're going to get 10 more. You're going to cover the spread is what you're For saying. For sure. For okay, sure. you're the favorites, and you're going to cover the spread. Okay, all right. Well, here we go. You guys know the rules. We're going to put one minute on the clock. You ready for this? Get your breathe in. Hunter Caldell is going to be giving our clues. <clears throat> Dollander, you're going to be giving the guesses. You guys ready? Let's do it. On your mark, get set, go. Oh, Lord. Country boy. Uh, Tifton. He's a stallion. Stallion. Bowl cut. Bowl cut? He's a stallion. Country boy, strong. Go next, next, next. Oh, God. Canadian. Canadian. Mustache. Killer. Adam Manchuk. Love it. <laughs> Biceps. <laughs> Barnzuki. <laughs> okay. Uh, New York. Bates. Love it. Oh gosh. Country boy, uh, Ringgold? Freshman? Is that allowed? Freshman 2.0? Warren? No. Bearden? Yes. Uh, Boston hat. Berg Moser. Tall, machine, athletic. Time, time, no! Time, time, that time. was fast. Dude, tall machine athlete. That's easy. Dollander, you're giving the clues. Caldell, you're giving the guesses. One minute on the clock. On your mark. Get set. Go. Red. TC. Weird lefty. Clifton. Yes. Diesel. Wrong. No, 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 no. Chase Evans. No. Doesn't like steak. Chicken fingers. Uh, cookie. Freshman. New freshman. JD. I'm skipping that one. Skipping that one. Law. Chase Evans. He's a righty, but he should be a lefty. Pitcher. Uh, Long hair. Freezing. Diesel. Rob. Ram. Seattle. Call Harvey. 
Fuck. Stone Cold Killer. Time. Oh, Time. I knew that was, that was Gavin. I knew Time. it. Oh. Green team with a total of 13. Let's go. 13. Let's go. If they get three, we win. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, representing Team Gray is Nick Tanner and Tate Kite. Gentlemen, how we doing? Doing pretty good. Doing good. How are you? The, I'm doing fantastic. The bar has been set pretty high by Hunter and Hunter. What's the over-under? You guys going to get more than 20, <coughs> less than 20? I just picked what that did, random number. What did they get? How I many just pe- picked that random number. How many people we got on the team? About, about, about 40. Probably about 40. Over 39. Over 39. Yeah, okay. for sure. All right. Man, baseball is confident. That's all I know. All right, here we go. One minute on the clock. Nick, you're going to be giving the clues. Tate, you're going to be guessing. All right. On your mark, get set, go. Uh, you got him from ABAC. Clay Lee. Allen. Uh, Canadian mustache. Adam Anchuk. Um, Same name as me. Barnes. Catcher, stupid. Chase. Other one. Henry. Other one. <laughs> Bates. Uh, country dude throws a knuckleball. Bearden. Um, we make fun of him and say that he's gross because uh, he doesn't shower. Who? Came out of the room really mad at uh, Miles. We got the picture of him coming out. Can I pass? Berg Moser. Yep, got it. Uh, in this room right now. Cardell. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, got a really punchable face. Cook hit him in the face the other day. I don't know. Um, Ginger. TC. Yep. Uh, same initials as him, but different. Ah, no. Oh, t- uh, Taylor Clifton. Okay, the one who hit TC in the face. Time, Cook. time, time. Not gonna get him in. Not gonna get that last one in. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Oh. Go. Freshman. Um, JD. Yep. Uh, transfer from Indiana Tech. Harvey. Nope. Oh. Another one. Pass. I don't. Uh, pitcher in this room. Uh. Oh, I can't use position. Dang it. Go. Um. Law. Says uh, law. Chase. Uh, pitcher, <laughs> I can't use positions. Uh, with you at full count this summer. Uh, Hab. Yep. Also at full count this summer. Mm. Ogre. Uh, Handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, transfer for Indiana Tech. Harvey. Yep. Five dot. Uh, Henry. Uh, do the trip over the L screen and circuits. Ooh, Gavin. Yep. Our roommate. Gabe. Time, time, time. All right. All right. It came down to the wire, gentlemen. Uh, we had a couple, couple of wild pitches thrown there at the end. It almost cost you the game. Um, slow getting out of the block on this side, but you know, like a true starter, you found your rhythm and found the zone a little bit. But ultimately, our winners today were Team Gray, Tate Guy, and Nick Tanner here. Uh, you guys have won the bear. You can uh, take a selfie with him and uh, take him home, and he can uh, hang out at your residence for for a couple of days. So uh, does that sound good? Congratulations here. Uh, thanks for playing along, guys. Greatly appreciate it. We're so looking forward to seeing you guys out there at the Grizzly Baseball Complex this spring. Sounds good? All right. Good. 
I cannot wait to see GGC baseball back out on the diamond competing. The Grizzlies are practicing this fall harder than they ever have before to improve on what was already their impressive 23-2 and mark from a year ago. Big thanks again to Chase Hodges for being on today's show. It's always a pleasure to have him on the Grizzly Digital Network. Fans, don't forget to log on. GGC Athletics, brand new app. Download it to your favorite mobile device. As for us, that'll do it here on the Grizzly Growl Show. It's a great day to be a Grizzly. So long, everybody. program actually creates leaders. The entire course is led by students. Students lead their projects, students form teams, students present their projects, students develop their skills together by leading this project. Employers really love the fact that we have given you the experience to develop a project from start to finish, to present that project at various conferences, to analyze results from your workshops and create this well-rounded experience that really is unique to this course. The first part of the semester they build technical skills, the second part of the semester they build professional development skills such as speaking skills, communication skills, just presentation, demo, research posters at conferences, so they improve their own resumes. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Grizzly Growl Show. <laughs> Was not expecting that. We've got a great show for you. Plenty to roar about from the ITA Oracle Cup in Rome, Georgia. We've got head coach Chase Hodges on today's episode. <laughs> looking forward to that. Also looking forward to GDC Baseball playing in the latest segment of the Guess Who game. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first, we have some exciting news as GGC Athletics is delivering Christmas early to Grizzly fans all over the world. That's right, we have wrapped and delivered a brand new app that you can download for free. Check it out. Go to your latest app store to both Google and Apple. It is available. Download it. Thumb around. Have a good time. We're so looking forward to all the fun features and interactions with you and the upcoming season. This will be the place to get the latest information, updates, and of course, my favorite, live broadcast. That's right, live broadcast coming to your mobile devices and tablets. Download it today for all the fun interaction for what is going to be a jammed-packed spring season. Don't go anywhere. We'll have head coach Chase Hodges coming up next on the Grizzly Digital Network. This is the view from the Grizzly Soccer Complex, home to both the men's and women's soccer programs at George Gwinnett College. The -the state-of-the-art playing turf provides an outstanding surface for elite-level competition. The on-campus facility features laser-graded technology, 
an advanced drainage system, and team dugout-style seating. The Grizzly Soccer Complex hosts not only two top-notch soccer programs, but conference and national tournaments as well. For more information on our first-class facility, visit our facility page at ggcathletics.com. Welcome into Studio 5. We have a very championship-worthy guest here with us today from GGC Men's and Women's Tennis, Chase Hodges. Chase, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Are you uh, you recovered from Rome? I mean, that's that's a yeah. long three-day grind out there in the sun. Yeah, it was a grind. I mean, we uh, we left Thursday and, and got back late Sunday, so you kind of use Monday as your uh, recovery day. And here we are Tuesday, feeling pretty good. We have you on record previously yeah. saying that Mobile may be your yeah. your favorite city outside of Atlanta, right? Because of the success the Grizzlies have had, you've joked about buying a vacation home down there yeah. whenever you yeah. retire, absolutely, uh, because you love it so much. It is. Do you have place. a second favorite city? Second favorite, um, I mean, Rome, Georgia is creeping up. It's getting it's up, creeping there. up because I mean, Rome's just a great spot. I mean, it's a uh, if you haven't been there, it's one of the best tennis facilities in the country. Um, Nice city, uh, close to GGC. So, um, you know, hopefully they'll continue to hold that event there. Um, we've been very successful. And uh, I put it as a distant number two, though. Mobile. Ooh, distant number two. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Mobile's like that. a heavy favorite at one. Rome, distant. But it is second. Well, for the average consumer out there yep. for, for tennis, this is probably the most confusing thing sure. for them to understand is the difference between the fall season yep. and the spring season right. for our athletes in your tennis program. Explain that to me. Well, biggest difference is fall is all about individuals. Uh, it's all about singles national titles and doubles national titles. Uh, as a tennis player, your uh, team season is January to May, and that's when you're competing for GGC. You're trying to beat other teams. You're competing, competing for that team national title. In the fall, it's really uh, individual-based to get you ready for the spring. Um, but it's a great opportunity to kind of prove your worth as an individual for the team in the fall. And I think it's fantastic that you can look at it from the sense of you could be the best tennis player in the nation. Right. But if you're on a bad team, right. you're never going to win the team national championship. So yep. the fall and what the accumulation of Rome is, sure. you can represent your school and yourself and you could be crowned a national champion. Correct. What does it say for GGC Tennis that you guys are able to compete in both seasons and win national championships? Well, that's the goal. I mean, we're, we've been fortunate. Uh, typically, when you have really good players um, on your team, then you're going to be solid in both, and we've been able to do that. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we just want to keep racking up those national titles, whether it's team or individual. They all count as a national title. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to play for. Uh, each individual, when you come to GGC, and you go to practice every day, you can see the banners of all of our national champions and singles and doubles. Um, you see those banners dedicated to them, the photo banners as well. Uh, so every player wants to get on, on that, uh, at that facility on the, on the fence there to be able to kind of showcase themselves. So uh, the motivation is definitely high to be able to get one of those. And we have a new face to add yep. um, down at the GGC tennis facility. Yep. Maria Genovese wins the Women's Singles Individual NAI National Championship. Yep. Describe her journey just a little bit because she was new to GDC last year, but now in the fall competing in individual. It started all the way back at the South Region Championship. Explain yep. that progression to 
the picture everyone sees in her holding the trophy. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I got to give credit to you guys. I mean, I think it was her being on this show. I mean, I really think that set her up. The queen of the uh, South. To win this thing, really. I mean, because once you got her on the show, I think that, uh, you know, that basically gave her momentum heading into Rome. But, you know, her journey here has been phenomenal. She came from uh, Tyler Junior College where she won an individual national championship at the JUCO level in singles. Um, she played there for two years, arrived at GGC last fall, um, and basically um, made it all the way to the finals in singles and doubles in Rome last year. Uh, ultimately was unable to get it done, so she had a lot of motivation uh, looking for a bit of redemption heading into this fall. Um, this fall she was um, more than ready once she got back. Uh, she played a great regional and, and got great competition from teammates and then really set the tone for Rome. And she went in as a heavy favorite, which is always difficult to do. It's difficult to go in as the one seed, and she went in as the one seed and, and got the title for us. And she becomes the third women's singles national champion in GGC history. We have Valeria Poda in 2015, uh, Madeline Bosniak in 2018, and now we have Maria Genovese in 2020 with number 29 as, for the program. Um, we, we, we highlight here in, in Valentino Carantini, yep. um, he, I'll, I'll get to my point in a minute, but describe what he went through this weekend competing in both singles and doubles and, and advancing pretty far in both brackets. Yeah, I mean, Valentino, um, you know, he made the finals of singles. You know, he was one match away from bringing home a national title. Uh, we're talking about a guy that wasn't in our singles lineup last year. Really a phenomenal story. He's always been one of our best doubles players. Um, him, him and Benassia advanced to the uh, semifinals and nationals and doubles. Uh, Valentino's had a tremendous fall for us. Uh, obviously, we have a good amount of guys that are going to be returning in January, but uh, Valentino really put together some really impressive results in our regional to qualify for Rome and then really uh, played extremely well in the, all the way into the final um, and ran into a hot player in the final. So give credit to, to his opponent. But at the end of the day for Valentino, this was a, a huge experience for him from a confidence standpoint. And it's big for our team because I really feel like heading into the spring season, he's going to be really a staple in our lineup now. He's kind of established that tone. And uh, he's going to be a really, really tough out regardless of where he plays in our lineup. So uh, this fall was major for him from a motivational and from a confidence standpoint. And if Valet made a name for himself, yeah. describe what Ava and Maria did in women's doubles because they didn't even know each other three no, months ago, much correct. less almost win a doubles national championship on the women's side. Put their accomplishment in perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, they basically were a couple points away from or two points away from winning a national championship. Twice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was a, a situation where uh, that match really, you know, could have gone either way. A couple points here and there go our way. I think that we win that match. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you talk about a team that really has no experience playing together, uh, only played really two tournaments together, and for them to put together that type of run bodes really well for the future. And I think that uh, as they get more and more experience, they could be a favorite in that event in the future. So uh, just really proud of their effort. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those where Abba is a, a freshman. She hasn't been here too long. So incredible experience for her. And, uh, you know, I'm all about the spring. Um, so for me, it just only is going to make her tougher out in the spring uh, once we get to the dual match season. Yeah. Um, so season not over for, for all the Grizzlies just yet. Correct. But while I have you sitting sure. here, 
I, I want to get the the people a little yes. fired up for the spring. I know it's, okay. I know it's we're still with October still. Yeah. But but let's not forget the nation's longest winning streak still resides in Lawrenceville. That's 123 right. victories in a row for men's tennis. Yep. I believe we're still the the defending COVID national champions. I mean, when the when COVID hit and they canceled the season, we were still number one in both polls. We, when you look at the polls, when COVID hit, we were ranked one. Are you are we are you claiming on this show today that we're the 2020 national champions of the NAI? I love how you do this. Um, yeah. Why not? Absolutely. Sure. Call Absolutely. Doug. Let's put it on I mean, the list. we were ranked one when COVID hit. Um, we're the COVID national champions. Why not? Why not? So men and women. So what's uh what what do we look? We'll Will you give me that banner? Little spring, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get you one. What's it gonna look like? Uh, duct tape and sharpie. Is that what? There work? you go. Is that there you go. A little mask on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. It's good stuff. Um, no, but heading into uh, spring twenty one, I feel really good about both programs. Obviously, uh, we'll start with the men since you referenced the win streak. Obviously, one twenty three. We got to keep this thing rolling. Um, we got some good. Um, really high level players that are going to be joining us in January. We have some returners that are going to be joining us uh, back in January. We have our, our, our guys who were successful this fall. So we have a really good makeup of talent. Uh, for me, it's just really going to come down to, you know, how hard are these guys willing to put in the effort? How hard are they going to work? Because, you know, I think there's a couple teams that are, um, you know, going to be in the mix. So really it just comes down to preparation, who's working harder and who's really, who really wants it more uh, because, you can't really put a uh, measure on hunger in terms of how bad you want it. So uh, my biggest thing is, um, you know, it's sure we've had a lot of success, but we got to keep this thing going. Uh, as Neil Hodges, my dad would say, as, as soon as you get fat and happy, that's when you get beat. So I'm trying to uh, take that, you know, mindset out of our guys. And for the women, um, man, we were really, really good last year. Um, and I know that uh, COVID hit, but, you know, I felt like we were, it could have been one of, maybe the best team we've ever had in, in women's tennis history. Um, we are able to retain a good good amount of those female players, and we do have some really, really good ones coming in. So I'm you know, ecstatic about our women's tennis program and what we're gonna bring to the table. Um, you know, I think the future's really bright. We're gonna have some young players coming in. They're gonna be really competing for a top six spot. Uh, obviously, not everybody's going to be uh, happy because, as a coach, you know you may have eight or ten on the roster. Not all all of them can play, but I feel like we're going to have a, a really good team dynamic where they're going to be competing uh, within themselves to break into that lineup. And sometimes that's the best type of mentality you can have as a team in terms of you know kind of battling with your teammates to make that lineup. So uh, I think that we'll force each other to get better, and uh, I'm excited for both programs. Well, we're certainly excited about the spring and seeing all the Grizzlies back in competition down at the GGC tennis facility. But before I let you go, I I, I think people have been watching this interview for far too long, uh -huh. and they have to know, Chase. I mean, where did you get the shoes? I mean, is this just a coincidence? Uh, did we go we... shopping together? Like, what what is the deal here? Are we huh? talking about these? Yeah, yeah, the shoes you have on there. Yeah, well, these are called the Mahoney Twos. <laughs> Um, the Matt Mahoney twos. Uh, no, I'll give Matt full credit. And uh, they look phenomenal. They look better on me, but they look phenomenal on him. And, uh, you know, it's one of those. I love these shoes. I actually have two pairs. I love them that much. <laughs> two pairs? Yeah, the do. same color? Uh, same exact shoe, which I'm planning on having for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, there, there is some degree of practice versus match play. 
in terms of switching them up a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah. Keep, keep the game day ones fresh. The the ones that I don't wear as much, maybe bring out for like really big matches. Yeah. And for I, the, I these think, are kind of more daily wear. I think someone mentioned to me, and I, I shot it down pretty quickly. Yeah. You, you've heard of the, 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 the negative phrase, the stolen valor. Uh-huh. This, is, this isn't stolen swag by any no, stretch of imagination. No, not at all. If I get to sit next to or go shopping with or happen to have any apparel that's similar to a 29-time national oh. champion, I'll share that swag on you. Well, I also will say I could have easily said I had these be- before Mahoney, but, you know, I'm an honest guy. These are the Mahoney 2s. The new ones that I have, they are not the Mahoney 3s, though. Oh. Just so you know. Yeah. So you're going to step your game up even more. Yeah. I absolutely. like it. I can't wait to absolutely. see it. We can't wait to see the Grizzlies. Coach, thanks for coming by. Thanks for everything you guys do. Go Grizz. Go Grizz. We'll take a break here on the Grizzly Growl Show. We'll come back with more from Studio 5 here on the Grizzly Digital Network. A grizzly bear can lift a thousand pounds. So when someone tells you to be strong, be grizzly strong. We've got a classic battle out on the diamond. It's pitchers versus hitters in this week's edition of Guess Who with GGC Baseball. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Grizzly Growl Show. We're here with GDC Baseball in the newest game, Guess Who, sweeping the nation by storm. We've got the new law firm known as Hunter and Hunter, Dollander and Caldell. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Great. Awesome. Are we are we excited about this? Are we, are we, am I looking at the winning group right now? Of For course. Sure. What's what's the over-under? I mean, we can we get more than 20? We're getting at least 10 more than them. To, oh, we're going to get 10 more. You're going to cover the spread is what you're For saying. For sure. For okay, sure. you're the favorites, and you're going to cover the spread. Okay, all right. Well, here we go. You guys know the rules. We're going to put one minute on the clock. You ready for this? Get your breathe in. Hunter Caldell is going to be giving our clues. <clears throat> Dollander, you're going to be giving the guesses. You guys ready? Let's do it. On your mark, get set, go. Oh, Lord. Country boy. Uh, Tifton. He was a stallion. Stallion. Oh. Bowl cut. Bowl cut? He's a stallion. Country boy. Strong. Go next, next, next. Oh, God. Canadian. Canadian. Mustache. Killer. Adam Manchuk. Love it. <laughs> Biceps. <laughs> Barnzuki. <laughs> okay. Uh, New York. Bates. Love it. Oh gosh. Country boy, uh, Ringgold? Freshman? Is that allowed? Freshman 2.0? Warren? No. Bearden? Yes. Uh, Boston hat. Berg Moser. Tall, machine, athletic. Time, time, no! Time, time, that time. was fast. Dude, tall machine athlete. That's so easy. <laughs> Dollander, you're giving the clues. Caldell, you're giving the guesses. One minute on the clock. On your mark. Get set. Go. Red. TC. Weird lefty. Clifton. Yes. Let's go. Diesel. Wrong. No, 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 no,
Doesn't like steak. Chicken fingers. Uh, cookie. Freshman. New freshman. JD. I'm skipping that one. Skipping that one. Law. Chase Evans. He's a righty, but he should be a lefty. Pitcher. Uh, Long hair. Freezing. Diesel. Rob. Ram. Seattle. Kyle Harvey. Ah. Stone Cold Killer. Time. Oh, Time. I knew that was, that was Gavin. I knew it. Oh. Green team with a total of 13. Let's go. 13. Let's go. If they get three, we win. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, representing Team Gray is Nick Tanner and Tate Kite. Gentlemen, how we doing? Doing pretty good. Doing good. How are you? The, I'm doing fantastic. The bar has been set pretty high by Hunter and Hunter. What's the over-under? You guys going to get more than 20, <clears throat> less than 20? I just picked what that did, random number. What did they get? How I many just pe- picked that random number. How many people we got on the team? About, about, about 40. Probably about 40. Over 39. Over 39. Yeah, okay. for sure. All right. Man, baseball is confident. That's all I know. All right, here we go. One minute on the clock. Nick, you're going to be giving the clues. Tate, you're going to be guessing. All right. On your mark, get set, go. Uh, you got him from ABAC. Clay you? Allen. Uh, Canadian mustache. Adam Anchuk. Um, Same name as me. Barnes. Catcher, stupid. Chase. Other one. Henry. Other one. <laughs> Bates. Uh, country dude, throws a knuckleball. Bearden. Um, we make fun of him and say that he's gross because uh, he doesn't shower. Who? Came out of the room really mad at uh, Miles. We got the picture of him coming out. Can I pass? Berg Moser. Yep, got it. Uh, in this room right now. Cardell. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, got a really punchable face. Cook hit him in the face the other day. I don't know. Um, Ginger. TC. Yep. Uh, same initials as him, but different. Ah, uh, no. Oh, t- uh, Taylor Clifton. Okay, the one who hit TC in the face. Time. Cook. Time. Time. Not going to get him in. Not gonna get that last one in. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Oh. Go. Freshman. Um, JD. Yep. Uh, transfer for Indiana Tech. Harvey. Nope. Oh. Another one. Pass. I don't. Uh, pitcher in this room. Uh. Oh, I can't use position. Dang it. Go. Um. Law. Says uh, law. Chase. Uh, pitcher. I can't use positions. Uh, with you at full count this summer. Uh, Hab. Yep. Also at full count this summer. Mm. Ogre. Uh, Handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, transfer for Indiana Tech. Harvey. Yep. Five dot. Uh, Henry. Uh, do the trip over the L screen and circuits. Ooh, Gavin. Yep. Our roommate. Gabe. Time, time, time. All right. 
All right, it came down to the wire, gentlemen. Uh, we had a couple couple of wild pitches thrown there at the end. It almost cost you the game. Um, slow getting out of the block on this side, but, you know, like a true starter, you found your rhythm and found the zone a little bit. But ultimately, our winners today were Team Gray, Tate Kite, and Nick Tanner here. Uh, you guys have won the bear. You can uh, take a selfie with him and uh, take him home, and he can uh, hang out at your residence for for a couple of days. So uh, does that sound good? Congratulations here. Uh, thanks for playing along, guys. Greatly appreciate it. We're so looking forward to seeing you guys out there at the Grizzly Baseball Complex this spring. Sounds good? All right. I cannot wait to see GGC baseball back out on the diamond competing. The Grizzlies are practicing this fall harder than they ever have before to improve on what was already their impressive 23-2 and mark from a year ago. Big thanks again to Chase Hodges for being on today's show. It's always a pleasure to have him on the Grizzly Digital Network. Fans, don't forget to log on. GGC Athletics' brand new app. Download it to your favorite mobile device. As for us, that'll do it here on the Grizzly Growl Show. It's a great day to be a Grizzly. So long, everybody. This is Office Hours, and I'm your host, Spencer Raskoff. I co-founded Zillow and ran it for a decade, and in early 2020, I co-founded .LA, the preeminent news service covering the tech scene in my hometown, Los Angeles. On this show, you'll hear from founders, CEOs, and thought leaders from around the world with a focus on the innovators in Los Angeles. Coming up, we have Terry Boyle, the former Nordstrom exec, who's now the co-founder and CEO of Behold. Behold is a shopping site that aims to use AI and a focus on outfits to improve the e-commerce experience for fashion. Hi, everyone. Welcome, Terry Boyle, to the podcast. Hey, Terry, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Spencer? Excellent. Well, this is an exciting day. I don't think we've ever had a guest on the podcast on the day of the launch of their startup. So first of all, congratulations are in order. You have just launched Behold. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, you know, I don't think we knew that when we scheduled this. But yeah, <laughs> it is the day. Well, thank you for taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy day. You probably are looking at your Google Analytics metrics as we speak to to track usage and, and see what's happening in your store. So let's, let's go back uh, before we go forward. Um, and take us to, through your career briefly um, to lead up to the starting of Behold. Sure. I mean, I've been doing consumer tech startups for around 20 years. And then 2008, I did my first fashion tech company, which was Hotlook. And I joined super early on. And I've been in fashion tech ever since. We sold Hotlook to Nordstrom in 2011. I stayed on as president. And then I started NordstromRack.com. And then I ended up uh, running Trunk Club for a couple of years. So I've kind of had a look at a lot of different uh, in-person and tech-based fashion models. So how long were you an executive at Nordstrom in total? So seven, eight years? Eight years, which is you know amazing. I mean, I think when we got acquired, I don't think I had visibility of the fact that I'd stay for eight years. And it was a great time and, and really enjoyed it. And we were always doing something interesting. So it was, it was really cool. 
So what, what did you take away from the Nordstrom experience as, um, as an executive there that's helping inform how you run Behold? Well, there's a couple of things in that question. I guess I would say that there's, you know, my exposure to all these different business models and feeling like uh, fashion e-commerce was a little bit broken, that it was kind of too focused on choice. So, you know, you do a, a search for black shoes and you get 7,500 pairs. That feels more as a customer, like a punishment than a service. And then uh, there's no true personalization. So you and 10 people with completely different styles are going to see the same kind of web pages and the same search results. And it's and it's super item focused, you know, and, and we've got kind of a problem, which is 58% of what people own, they don't really wear. And I think that's because we sell it to them and it's too item focused. So I think I had exposure to all these business models. I kind of saw the customer pain and I kind of thought, hey, we could create a different model here that kind of put together some of the best of what you do in in-person shopping, what you do with personal styling and what you do with traditional e-commerce that could better address kind of customer needs. And so I think from a business model perspective, that's kind of what I took away. And then, you know, from a management and uh, kind of business approach perspective, I think working at Nordstrom, it's just so focused on the customer and that in-person experience that they have in the stores that they've built over a hundred years is really amazing. And, you know, it's hard not to kind of be impressed and just take that in when you're working there. And hard to replicate that online, obviously. I mean, some online brands have pulled it off, but with an entirely online experience, it is hard to build that customer connection and brand loyalty that you, you do have offline. Well, it is, but I, but I think you're just going to see it done differently. I mean, I think to me, I think when you see some of these great in-person experiences, it just points out how bad the online versions are. And I think that could be a lot better. And that's a big part of what Behold is solving for, is to make the online shopping experience it's not just like an in-person experience. We actually think there's some things about it that are better, but it's it's as personalized. It's as outfit focused, and uh, you know you're not just kind of pawing through a stack of 7,500 pairs of black shoes. You're really kind of getting to see kind of 20 pairs of black shoes that we think are right for you, given what we know about you. What's the customer experience like for Behold? So when a customer uses Behold, there's a short onboarding. It's usually around five to six minutes. It's all visual. And we're just showing them outfits and items to see, you know, how much or how little they like them. Uh, we ask a few questions around uh, body shape and size and budget. And then we start you on your own edit. So if you came in, it'd be the Spencer edit. And we have professional stylists who make outfits for customers. And every Monday, we give you seven to 10 outfits that have made, been made just for you. Uh, you can look at those outfits. You can uh, take them to the changing room and swap things in and out. You can create your own outfits guided by our AI and machine learning technology. And then everything that you do on the site is is personalized to the point that no two individuals will have the same experience over time. And so if you do a search, you know we don't bring you back 7,500 pairs of black shoes when you search on black shoes. We bring you back 20. And then we see you know what you think and how you react. And then we can bring back more based on that. Uh, we allow you to search based on outfits. So you can search for outfits with a black top or outfits with a red skirt, which is pretty new. We also let you tell us uh, things you own. And then we show you how you can wear those things and you can build outfits around those things that you already own. You took that leap 
um, you know, you left a, a great job as an executive at Nordstrom to start a company that's trying to uh, trying to do to fashion e-commerce what others have not done before. So what's the first thing that you did at that point when you're just, I mean, you didn't even have a name yet for the company, but, but walk us through a couple of those milestones over the last 12 months leading up to today. Uh, myself and my co-founder, Herman Radke, we, we had a good idea that we were kicking around. Uh, Herman is a CTO, so he's kind of a really good uh, counterpoint to me in terms of being able to build out a business. And so we kind of said, hey, we, we should do this. I mean, mentally, we were kind of looking for something new. We had been spending a lot of time on the Nordstrom Rack Hotlook side, doing a lot of more compliance stuff around socks and some of the information security stuff and really wanted to, to kind of... Uh, focus on more customer driven stuff. And so we just made the commitment to do it. And then I've, uh, I've got some pretty good connections in the venture world. And I was able to, to pull together some meetings and, and raise a nice seed round. And then as it turned out, we had a lot of people who worked with us before who were reaching out, who, who wanted to work with us again. And so we built a team that was really mostly at the start, a lot of people that we worked with before and, and really liked. And so, uh, that was a big part of it too. I think whenever you're doing a startup, or at least for us, the cultural aspect of it and just making sure it's kind of a place that you want to work and that people want to work is, is big. And we kind of felt like we knew we could could make that happen. How important was consumer or brand research during that ideation phase? Well, I think what's a little different about us and, and me is that I've spent so long in this space, 12 years, all these different business models, lots of uh, interactions with customers, lots of data. So I don't know that I had to do a lot of research. We did a little bit of research when we started because we had some questions about uh, how to execute certain components of the model, but I kind of felt like I was living the, the customer data and, and the mm -hmm. customer experience. And so, you know, I, that was part of what informed us as, as we were kind of thinking about this new model is, hey, I think if we do something like this, customers would really respond because we know that they're attracted to outfits and we know that, you know, they don't do well with 7,500 choice options. And we know that at the end of the day, you don't leave your house, you know, in an item, you leave in an outfit. And a lot of people don't know how to make outfits and they don't know <laughs> how to make more than like one outfit out of the different things they own. And so we kind of knew those things. We didn't know everything, but we felt like that was enough. For startup founders that are listening and they're thinking about recruiting people out of bigger companies, how did you know if somebody's going to be a good fit for startup life? Um, you know, maybe they've been very successful within a large company, and now you're trying to decide whether you hire them as a product manager, or a designer, or developer, or whatever. I mean, how as a hiring manager do you suss that out when somebody hasn't done startups before and you're bringing them in from a bigger company? In some ways, we had it a little easy. I think it is very tricky, in my experience, uh, largely before this, to take somebody out of a larger company and project them into a smaller one. It's They're just very different environments. They're very different paces. Uh, how they think about what they need to know before they start working, it, it all can be kind of challenging. And so I think, ultimately, you, know, you really have to kind of culturally understand the type of work environment somebody wants and is comfortable with. And there's definitely people who want to opt out of the larger company environment and opt into startups. And a lot of them can make that transition well. Some can't. And there's definitely some people, if you chase them inside big companies, that definitely can't make the jump to the smaller company. Mm -hmm. So the funding round, um, let's talk about that. What were some of the 
bigger issues that investors were raising during the funding round and just describe who your investors are, what the size of the round was and um, and how other startup founders should approach funding situations at the seed or, or early stage. Yeah, I think we were a little unusual in the sense that, you know, I've I've served on board sometimes with venture folks and have known a lot of the venture community around LA specifically for the last, you know, 15 plus years and have attended events with them. And uh, so when it came time to raise, we went to a lot of LA focused funds and our, our biggest investors are Upfront and Graycroft. We also have uh, Troy Capital and, and 10110. And so it's really, a, you know, a collection of LA VCs and, and to a large extent, LA Angels. And you know, I will say that uh, it was pretty straightforward for us. I mean, I think in general, Mark Sister, who's our investor up front, would even say I was, you know, we were mainly writing the check because we kind of believed in you. Uh, Mark is not a fashion tech focused person. Uh, but, you know, I think we kind of lucked out because we had some of those connections. And let's talk about LA for a moment. Um, what role has does LA play in Behold? I mean, would, what would this company look like if it were in San Francisco instead of LA? How important is LA? And is is this an okay place to build a, start, a tech startup like yours? Yeah, so I would say I always thought it was weird being in uh, the fashion retail industry that there wasn't a fashion retailer that was really headquartered in LA. It is probably the biggest consumer market for fashion retail, and it's also along with New York. Uh, the largest home of brands. And so we, we probably have more or as many brands as New York does that are, that are working in, in LA has certainly become famous for, you know, it's denim as well as it's casual look. Uh, you know, when we built Hot Look, it was a huge advantage to be in LA. Adam, who's the founder of Hot Look, used to, you know, go to lunch and sign a couple deals with brands that he saw there. I mean, it was, it's really a local industry. So we feel like, from that standpoint, it's great to be in LA. Uh, this is, you know, one of the two homes of, of the fashion industry in the U.S. From a talent perspective, you know, I came from the Bay Area back in 2005, and I really like building companies in LA. And it's only gotten easier. When I first came down here, you know, it was actually pretty hard to find the resources you need. But now, uh, you know, it's it's really not like that. There's a there's a pretty big pool of of tech product and other folks that, that you can hire to do a tech company. And I like it because it's a little less competitive than up North. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we usually base our businesses in downtown and we feel like we can draw from the entire LA area. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of talent there. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's changed is just the number of people required to launch a company. And I, I don't, you, I don't know the number and you don't have to share it if you don't want, but I would guess there are fewer than 20 full-time employees at Behold on launch day, which is totally different, right? <laughs> Compared with past startups. It is completely different. And and by the way, you're, you're a pretty good guesser. You're, you're right <laughs> in the neighborhood. So I think, you know, I had the same experience. I was with a company called People PC and, and we had hundreds of people. Uh, I think the biggest difference for me that's obvious is, uh, and I don't know if you, you probably remember this, I'm sure is that like software really works now. So you, uh, you get, software. You don't have to run this big RFP and analyze kind of what your use cases are. It usually works pretty much off the shelf and literally you can see it replacing uh, FTEs. And so Mm -hmm. you you are able in certain parts of the business to really leverage 
software that's already been built. And so I think for us, we just focused on, we, we kind of knew that. That was actually one of our kind of theses starting the company is like, how how great would it be if we didn't have to worry about any of the back end of e-commerce and we just worried about the customer experience part of e-commerce? Right. And if you could do that, all the kind of cool experiences you could create for customers, if your team, even if it was small, was entirely focused on that. And and that has, has borne out, at least right now. So that's been kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, I, I just started jotting down examples of services that a startup on launch day might be utilizing and think about the following list in the context of how few of these companies existed 10 or 15 years ago, the last time you or I might have, have launched a startup. So Google Analytics, Slack, mm-hmm. Asana, Trello, Salesforce, Twilio, Stripe, AWS, Monday.com. I mean, like it goes on and on. I bet Shopify, big commerce. Shopify, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> uh, all the stuff that moves data around, like that's huge. All the, like the, the piping that you can just put in mm-hmm. it's, it, mm-hmm. and move it from application to application. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, so one of the things about Behold is that you're a two-sided marketplace, right? You need consumers to shop for clothes and, and outfits, but you also need suppliers or brands, as you call them, to supply the inventory. As you're building a marketplace during the last year, just can you talk through how you resource allocate between consumer demand generation and brand acquisition? Like, How do marketplace builders solve this chicken and egg problem? Most of my effort is on building the brand the brands that we're doing business with, because uh, if you don't have them, the technology doesn't matter. If at the end of the day, you're not selling brands uh, that are creating products and are part of outfits the customers want to buy, then your technology is really for not. So we spent a lot of time on that part of it. Uh, but that's, that is also pre-launch. And then post-launch, we're going to start shifting to spending a lot, a lot of time on marketing. So I think for us, the consumer investment was really on how do we create a differentiated experience? How do we create an experience that's better than the current e-com or stylist in a box models uh, and that customers are really going to gravitate to, but make sure that we have a solid brand base. And it has to be a significant brand base because you know, if you launch and you don't have enough inventory, that's going to be a tough experience. And I don't think consumers are going to stick in there with you on that. So, so when definitely... you're, pit- you're pitching a brand and you're saying, hey, you know, give us your whatever partner with us to sell your jeans through us. And they're like, behold, you're just a startup. I've never even heard of you. And I kind of know you from when you used to work at Nordstrom, but like, you know, how many units am I going to sell in the first six months? How, how do you, what do you say at that point? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? You know, I tell brands, we are complementary to your direct business, not competitive. So if you think about what we do, we're focused on outfitting and we're focused on styling. That's not something a single brand can do. Outfitting in particular is really a multi-brand activity for most customers. They don't want to dress head to toe with the same brand. And so we bring something to the table that they can't bring themselves. And it also is going to be something we market through different channels. We're not going to be out there, you know, leading with product price and bidding on the same keywords as them. But their traditional catalog channels are. And so as, as these brands look to grow their own direct channels, they're going to start bumping into these other catalog retailers they're doing business with and be competitive. Mm-hmm. Well, we're complementary. So I think strategically, you kind of tell them the story and they get it because they're starting to run into these pain points. And uh, and so that's been a big part of, of why we got them on board. And then, you know, obviously there's some certification with my background, as well as some of the folks that we have, you know, reaching out to the brands on our behalf that also makes them comfortable. Right. Now, how does Amazon, by the way, that positioning makes a lot of sense to me in in, uh, 
longtime listeners probably are sick of hearing online travel or online real estate analogies, but it does remind me of how we used to position um, hotel distribution at Hotwire or Expedia, which is to say, look, of course, you should have your own hotel direct distribution on your own hotel websites, but we're going to bring you an incremental customer, um, maybe a customer that's not brand loyal, a customer who might not have found your product otherwise, and we're going to sometimes package it with air. And that's kind of out the outfitting, um, yeah. you know, the travel version of outfitting. Um, so, so how does Amazon figure into this whole conversation? Obviously, they've they've dominated so many other categories, but where are they in fashion? And and how you know how much do you think about Amazon? So, I mean, Amazon obviously is is a fierce competitor. I would say that historically they've never gotten a lot of traction in the part of fashion that we're targeting, which is contemporary and advanced contemporary. In a search that returns 7,500 items for black shoes, and you have this really great brand uh, that's selling you know, shoes that are sustainable and maybe vegan and locally, so- locally made, and you're just putting them against you know, a $25 pair of shoes that is almost brandless, the brands look at that and, and they're very aware that, hey, that's not good for my brand. You know, at the end of the day, I sell based on my design aesthetic as well as kind of the values of my brand. And those aren't things that Amazon really kind of features to customers. What is the the one thing that you think other startups perhaps don't always remember to prioritize that you think is pretty important? And I'll go first while, while I give you a chance to, to think about this one. I, I think that... SEO is still underappreciated um, as a as an art, as a science, as a discipline for startups. That they they you know usually startups six or twelve months after launching remember oh god SEO search engine optimization I need to go hire a consultant to figure out how to do better in Google. But it's not something that is baked into the product uh, development phase of the six months prior to launch as much as it ought to be. What, what do you think startups generally forget or deprioritize? I mean, I suppose it's changed. I know certainly a lot of startups that I knew early on didn't actually fully think through their economics and whether they could actually ever truly be successful with them. The world doesn't need another marketplace. I think you, know, you have to do more with uh, innovation for the customer to make them care because ultimately the customer doesn't care you know, what your model for getting inventory is. They just care about their experience. And so sometimes I, I see folks who kind of fall in love with the model versus the actual differentiated experience that a consumer is going to have. So second to last question, I always think about um, how somebody would describe a product to somebody else. That's the ultimate litmus test. A week from now, some customer that used it for the first time this week, says to her friend, hey, you should really check out Behold because X. What do you hope they say to their friend at that point to describe this great new service? I think we would hope a couple of things. I think we would say uh, it's amazing how quickly they understood what I like. I love seeing things in full outfits and I love being able to interact with the shopping experience. So the ability to, for example, swap you know, items in an outfit, in and out. And uh, I think if we nailed those, uh, and I hope that's what they would say. That's cool. That's cool. It's, I was just talking to a TikTok executive um, and I, I asked kind of a similar question to him or it came up in conversation. And, you know, to hear him describe TikTok secret sauce to me, 
it, it wasn't like, oh, it's fun videos, it's entertaining, it's amusing, it taps into the zeitgeist. It was the amazing thing about TikTok is that um, with basically no signals, it is it learns your preferences so well, so it can amuse you, you know, for for minutes or hours, hours on end. Yeah, without you having to thumbs up anything or like anything or share anything or follow anybody, it just it just kind of knows with this sort of magic following. Uh, you know, this the, the, reading these very lightweight signals um, of just what you're consuming and and the personalization associated with it. That's how that's what he thinks is amazing about TikTok and. I mean, you're describing something sort of potentially similar for Behold, if you can pull it off. TikTok for for, for women's fashion would be a, a good place <laughs> to hold. <laughs> That's true. That'd be a valuable company. Um, so, so all right, last question for for audio listeners who haven't met you in person, maybe, Terry. I mean, you're a fashion ex- industry executive. What is your sense of fashion? What, tell us what's in your closet. <laughs> Let's put it this way. When I first uh, was looking for my next gig, one of them was Hot Look. And my wife laughed and said, you'll do that one because you'll be the least stylish person in fashion <laughs> that, that has ever existed. Uh, but I will say that I've gotten kind of pulled along and I've actually had at Trunk Club personal stylists work with me. So now I'm a lot better dressed than I used to be, but I'm definitely not somebody who grew up saying like, I want a career in fashion or, you know, I love clothes. Thanks, Terry. Good luck and good luck to you and to Behold. And I should also disclose that I'm a small personal investor. uh, So rooting for you and for the company. Uh, Congratulations on the launch. Good luck. Thanks, Terry. Awesome. Thanks, Spencer. That's it for this episode of Office Hours. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Spencer Raskoff. If you could leave a rating or a review for the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. Also, please tweet at me on Twitter, at Spencer Raskoff. And check out my newest company, .LA, that's D-O-T period L-A. While you're there, sign up for our daily newsletter to get the latest developments on Los Angeles tech. See you next time. the idea of being a grizzly because a grizzly to me is very strong also have the character of serving uh, others that energy you see at GGC you see it in your colleagues there's opportunity for you know um, advancement there's opportunity for innovation there's opportunity to try new things teamwork you know teamwork is huge on this campus whenever any department needs help you know we send out the email, and I tell you, we get not only the people that we ask to help us, but many others willing to help. Everybody is striving to do the very best that they can for each and every student um, here at the college and for the institution in and of itself. We can see the difference that we make. Every time it's you have new challenge, and we have passed a lot of challenges since 2006 to now. Definitely my motivating factor are my students, and not just my students, which is interesting, but all the students here at GGC. My goal is really to make my students lifelong independent learners. I tell them this all the time. So we want students that graduate here, we want them to be able to take on leadership roles in the communities, um, local and global. We want them to be creative in how they approach um, problems and issues that we're facing in the 21st century. We're all working together 
the common mission of getting these students ready for, you know, the workforce, for jobs, um, for, you know, moving forward the rest of their lives. Well, I've worked with lots of students, and we have a lot of um, learning support students. So they come, they're first-generation students like I am. You don't know what's going on in their life. So I think it's listening to them and understanding where they're coming from, and then you can better serve them. I got a really special job. I get to go every day and look for great teaching and really excited learners. I sometimes see students on their first year, and um, I'm sometimes around when they, when they graduate, which is really good, but because you get to know their stories a little bit, it's really sad too. I think the closest thing to a college environment is a family. And if you ever thought anything other than giving your best to your family, it doesn't make sense. So when you come to this campus and you're working with our students or working with the faculty or other staff members, you're dealing with your family member. How would you ever give them anything but your best? if others are dealing with the same project management challenges as you? Not sure where to turn for guidance and leadership? Office Hours are in session as we discuss project management and PMOs with global leaders, hearing their story and learning their secrets to success. Our goal is to empower you and help you elevate your PMO and project management career to new heights. Welcome back to Project Management Office Hours with your host, PMO Joe. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours. We're the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management. Before we dig into the show with our special guest, just a few announcements. I'd like to thank the Northern Utah PMI chapter. They hosted me yesterday for a lunch session as we talked about the purpose-driven PMO framework. And that was a good chat, so I appreciate that. Also, uh, some upcoming sessions. October 24th, I'll be speaking at the North Alabama PMI Chapter Professional Development Day, PDD. October 26th, the PMO Global Awards Conference kicks off. On November 13th, I have a doubleheader, uh, Pittsburgh PMI Chapters uh, Professional Development Day and a session with uh, Wichita State University. And uh, we're getting closer to Veterans Day here in the U.S. And uh, as you all know, I support veterans and I'm co-founder of the nonprofit organization VPMMA. We'll be holding our fall fundraiser the week of November 7th. We have a series of events planned and you can go out to www.thevpmma.org to learn how you can participate in our run-walk fundraiser. Or, of course, to be a mentor to help our veterans transition into civilian project management careers. also want to thank our sponsor, the PMO Squad. They're home of the purpose-driven PMO. Visit thepmosquad.com to learn how they can support your project management team and help you get your PMO stood up 
improved or headed in the right direction. Also, finally, a reminder to everyone to visit projectmanagementofficehours.com to see the list of all of our upcoming episodes and check out all of our past episodes. Be sure to subscribe and catch all of the different podcasts as they come out. So for today, I am super excited to have one of the superstars in our community. Peter Taylor is joining us live from the UK. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. For those who don't know, Peter is one of the finalists for the PMO Influencer of the Year. He's uh, made it into great company, into the top three. So the PMO Global Awards Conference I had mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, they'll be announcing the winner of that. So good luck to you, Peter. Hopefully you bring that home. If you can, just take a moment here to introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. And, and it's great to be here. And I have absolutely no idea how I got to be one of the finalists <laughs> for PMO Influencer of the Year. But I must have been, must have been doing something right, I guess, I guess. Um, yeah, who, who am I? What am I? I'm a project manager. That's the main thing. I'm a project manager. And I have been for an awful long time. Been an amazing journey. But about 11 years ago now, actually, I had the opportunity to write a book and I had this idea of the of, of a concept like you're referred to as productive laziness, which is we, where the idea of the lazy project manager came from. That book that was launched then, and which is still uh, you know a big seller, it's a number one on Amazon f- for a while. Uh, it kind of launched a kind of parallel career for me. So on one hand, I you know I work with organisations, I guide PMO development, I've, I've headed up some of the largest PMOs in the world over the last fifteen years. On the other hand. I'm a well-traveled, up until this year, of course, a well-traveled um, uh, professional speaker, author, a consultant, coach, blah, 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 all those things. Um, I've had the joy of traveling to 25 countries so far and, and talking to many thousands of people around the world. And, you know, that's, that's kind of me. But at the heart of it all, it's project management. It's project management. Well, and that's uh, that's why we're here, right? So let's talk project management and, and dig in maybe a little deeper on the book, right? I, I think... It, it, maybe it's the curse and the blessing, right? It's kind of like that actor who gets uh, in that role that everybody knows them and the rest of their career, they're, they're never the, the new role, right? They'll always be the same character. Does everybody now think you're just the lazy PM guy? Is that, a, you know, it's, it's a blessing to be able to be so popular because of that book. It's, it's not a curse, that's for sure. I mean, you know, that, you know within, a, within a few years of writing the book, I mean, it's a small book, it's only 30,000 words. You know, and we're hardworking people, right? I mean, this is, I always find the contradiction in your book title, right? It's the lazy PM, but where PMs are are really working hard, right? I mean, there's a lot of stress, There's we're, we're trying to put strategic objectives through. How did you come up with the title or why are you using lazy in that context? Yeah, well, I mean, whenever you do something, you want it to be eye-catching. And, and I so let's talk about the essence of the book. The essence of the book is about working smarter, not harder. It's a, what I call productive laziness. It's efficient ways of working. And it came from uh, the point, at that point, I was, I was, work, I was running a, a PMO. I had over 100 project managers in 17 countries working for the PMO. And I, was, I, I noticed something. I noticed half of them were working efficiently, and they were doing, on average, normal working hours, normal working weeks. I mean, projects go up and down. We know yeah. they're not flat. That's what makes them a fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But on average, they were doing like 40, 45-hour weeks. And they were being reasonably successful. The other half were working crazy hours, 60, 70, 80 hours. And they were being no more successful. 
and I, I did some behavioral analysis between the two groups. What were they doing differently? And it came down to, yeah, the, if you like, the, this what I called the smarter project managers, who became the, what I called the lazy project managers. They were they were efficiently using their time. They were efficiently delegating to their team members. They weren't getting involved in every meeting, every conversation, every decision. All the mistakes I made when I was a young project manager, for sure. Yeah. And it just gave me this idea, and the two things came together. And actually, my boss, well, I thought I thought my boss liked me, but he called me lazy one day. He says, laziest person I know. And I realized after some reflection that he was being complimentary. I was upset to start with, to be honest. But I realized it all came together. You know, suddenly, whoa, the lazy project manager. Insult your profession and get on. And yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. The rest is history, you know. Thousands of copies of the book sold. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it is a brilliant concept. And, and the point of working smarter, not harder is really the core of project management itself. We're trying to influence and motivate teams to get work yeah. done. We shouldn't be working hard to do that. We should be getting the team to be efficient in doing that. So I, I, again, I think it's a, a brilliant idea, but also the, we don't want to get lost in the title of what's in the book, right? I mean, the yeah, book it, is it, a great concept. And, you know, it is one of those things. I must admit, lazy hasn't worked in some some areas of the world. I mean, lazy, you know, particularly the Asian market just can't get past the concept. This is a, you know, you've got to get past the lazy thing and it's it's not seen. You know, and, the, you know, the book and the trainings and, and presentations have been rebranded in certain areas. But, you know, the essence is there. I kind of, I, it's you know, it's catching people's attention. And um, then get into the book, and it is a book. It's about how you are, if, how you should be effectively being a project manager, and you know, working with your team, guiding them, leading them, and not not getting buried in the detail, which I see so many young project managers doing. They, they're so keen to get be successful, they they get down in the detail so much, and they they forget to be project leaders. You know, we're talking about books, and you spearheaded another book initiative this year. Uh, which I had the good fortune to participate in, the project list project manager, I think is uh, was the title of that. Share a little bit about that. I mean, that was fun, right? Uh, obviously, you were at the core of it, so you had more fun with it, maybe, than I did. Uh, oh, I did. Oh, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was. I, so, so you know, when all when all this kicked off, when the world was going into lockdown, when you know, I was seeing a lot of. Um, I mean, I'm I'm big on LinkedIn. So, anybody out there, you know, wants to connect to me on LinkedIn, send a connection. Um, and I, but I was seeing a lot of um, a lot of comments from project managers who were talking about losing their jobs, uh, projects being delayed, you know, furloughed at home, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I was trying to think, what could we do that would be interesting? And a couple of people had talked to me about some ideas they had. And then I, I don't know, I, I woke up one weekend and I thought, you know what? I, you know, I have the means now to publish a book. You know, I've, I've learned the ways of self-publishing and, and the art of it and, and how you can do it. So I came up with this idea of, um, of producing a book in 21 days. Um, and I said, and I just I just wrote a simple brief for LinkedIn on, on that, that Monday. I, I put out there anybody interested in contributing. I put a little profile together, as you know, you know which is, you know, 500 words. It's got to be in by this date. It was a very, very strict time frame. I had over 100 people said they were really interested from all over the world. You know, I had about 80 um, submissions in the end, and I used 56 of those in the book. We basically got all the content, did the editing. And then, yeah, I know there were some typos, and we've corrected <laughs> most of those now. 
we got it out there. I, I even ran a competition for, for parents of uh, project managers or parent, uh, project managers who were parents to get their kids to design the cover. So it's one of the it is the most unusual cover for a project management book ever. I love it. Um, and we did it. We got it published in 21 days um, up through Amazon. You can go and get it on Kindle and you can go and get it in pretty format. And I'm I'm so proud about it. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And, and yeah, I, I thank you and I thank all the other 55 people who gave me great insights and great thoughts to include in the book. And that's what I, I like about it, right, is the fact that it's not just one person's perspective. It's it's almost an industry speaking back to all of us, right? And for those who haven't gotten a copy of that yet, I certainly recommend you go out and pick one up. It's great to see a project management community use project management practices to have scope, deadline, timeline, right, and to execute against all those steps. Uh, it was fun, right? It, it, a lot of the stuff in yeah. there is informative, but it it isn't a serious project that's uh, life and death on the line or, or millions of dollars, right? It's just a way no, for the it community. No, but it's, it, there are some real, I mean, we broke it down into kind of like, you know, lockdown inspiration and, the, and the legacy ideas, if you like, um, for people. And, you know, I, I sum it up at the end of the book um, is the fact that, what well, look, 56 people came together. Most of them didn't know each other. Uh, we produced something of value in 21 days. I mean, as a global community, in our millions, just imagine what we are truly capable of if we came together with a single focus, uh, with a single objective. Uh, you know, I was very proud of, of what we achieved. Well, and that's, uh, you had earlier said, hey, you're not sure why you're one of the top 15 PMO influencers. Well, it's initiatives like that, right? And putting that book together for the community. So again, thanks for doing that and uh, being the light, right? The beacon driving all of us to do that. That was an awesome thing. The lazy project manager, like you said, over a decade ago, and and uh, what is going? Well, actually, before I go into that, I, I just want to go back. You had talked about the books. You have a, a seminar coming up, correct, with Rick Morris, I believe, oh, on yeah, how yeah. to put how to kind of do the, the, this book authoring and self publishing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, yeah, so there's there's a free webinar. It's uh, it's out there on Eventbrite right now. Or if you know if you want to reach out to me, I'll send them the link. Send them the link. When I when I we did the the, the, the twenty one day challenge, the project was manager. A couple of people were you know really proud. They came back to me and they said, "This is amazing. I'm I'm, I'm published. I'm, I never thought this was possible." And I talked to a couple of them and said, "Well, you know, I started by just commenting on stuff and then blogging and then writing some articles and then eventually evolved into books." Um, and I thought, well, I know, you know, Rick Morris and I have worked together in the past, and you know, I know he's done some great uh, great books as well. A great speaker, and so I reached out to Rick and I said, Well, look, why don't we have a chat? And let it's just an open conversation between Rick and myself. Let's just share our experiences. How did you get published? Because there's, there's many ways to get published traditional, shared risk, self publishing, and others. And I said, Why don't we just have a chat? We'll have people listening in, they can ask some questions, and we we'll just talk it through. And if we can inspire one or two of them to, to you know, maybe write the next lazy project manager, then hell, that's gonna be amazing. Yeah, I love the idea, and I think I actually am probably going to sign up myself. I've uh, I've got two books in process. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm slightly behind schedule on one of them. Purpose Driven PMO I had promised would be out this year. Eh, might not happen, uh, but we'll see. And uh, and what was what was refreshing yesterday at um, the Northern Utah chapter is that when I finished the presentation we had q a afterwards and somebody said you should write a book on this and i said i said that's great you said that because i actually am process of writing one so at least i'll have one person out there who want to buy the book 
Uh, this, is, I, this is always late on my last. Well, it wasn't truly late because they have, you know, the publishers have a hell of a backlog right now. But you know, it was due in in July, and, and with the whole lockdown thing, I just only had too much too much time. <laughs> I firstly I find myself less productive if I have the more time I have, um, and I kind of have to create uh, pressures to myself to actually do it. And I, 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 we shut it down, and I got it the final version submitted a couple of weeks ago, so we're good. It's in production now, so I'm I'm now thinking about the next book or two. That's fantastic. Project management, obviously, in this COVID world, is evolving, and and it's the project economy from PMI is trying to change their landscape and. Yeah. And we have so many other organizations that are trying to become prominent uh, in the project management world. What it's, what excites you these days, right? What's kind of got your attention in project management? Yeah, I think two things, and they're, they're both kind of technology led. Well, you know, one is a kind of a subset of the other. I mean, AI for me is is so exciting. You know, I've started talking about AI, you know, there's, and there's a lot, there's many layers to AI. Um, you know, there's the whole you know, process automation, there's the chatbots, there's machine learning, and there's, you know, the autonomous project manager, which is the kind of, you know, scary Terminator thing, which just doesn't exist at the moment and not, not, not going to exist for the foreseeable future. But the whole drive of AI, I think, is amazing because, I, you know, there's just, we have to be honest as project managers, this stuff, that doesn't really excite us that much. There's the tedious reporting, analytics and stuff that goes on. Um, and, and the reason I'm excited about it is because, you know, I started out as an accidental project manager and, and I reflected on why I was even successful. Had it, since I had no idea. It was eight years before I actually went on a training course to become, you know, understand project management. But somehow I managed to survive. And it's because I, I only could focus on the people and the people are critical. Projects are about people. They're not about process, blah, 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 blah. Um, so AI coming in there and the stuff that is possible or going to be possible very soon about, you know, the kind of trigger analytics, the kind of support model, the, you know, taking away the, the boring stuff from project managers is just going to be so exciting. And one particular aspect that I'm really focused on is the project team uh, performance analytics or project team performance management. Because, and I'm working with one company specifically on that. Uh, as an expert advisor, because this is a focus on project team alignment. So exactly as you said, you talked about, you know, the, the PMI and the project economy and the fact that more and more stuff out there is going to be project-based inside organizations. Well, you know, we could, we've done so much around the process, but now there's an opportunity to actually do stuff about the team. How are the team truly feeling? And I don't mean an end of project retrospectives activity. I mean, do them, do those for sure. But I'm talking about in the moment, pulse, nudges, alerts, all that kind of stuff that really shows through the kind of AI analytics and algorithms what the te- the mood of the team is. And it's the whole, you know, team building, the, you know, Bruce Tuckman model, the, the forming, stor- uh, storming, norming, performing. Teams are so dynamic in projects that that, that sort of support for a project manager about really how your team are performing, how they're feeling, how they're aligned, are they collaborating, are they, do they have a single purpose? It's just all of that, all of that, as you can tell, is, is so exciting. And I think, you know, I've been saying it for years, now is the best time to be in project management. Yeah. No matter what my presentation is, I always start within the first couple of slides. I have a trend chart from the pulse of the profession that shows mm-hmm. for the past decade, our industry's performance has been flat. Right. We've got more project managers. We've increased the investment we've made in technology. We have more certifications. We have agile and traditional and different methodologies we use. But all of that investment 
we still stink, right? We still only hit about 50% success on projects. And why is that the case? I'm right with you. It's people, right? We're yeah. not investing in how to be leaders, right? We're just executing the steps of, you know, the checklist of doing a project. We haven't taught our project managers to be leaders. And I think what you're talking about here is, is really hitting on something that I'm passionate about as well to get people to motivate and to influence and know when someone's having a bad day and not be able to push them and into how to interact with people. And that's and he's significantly more important now. I mean, it was, it was already becoming more important because of the, you know, the virtualization, the globalization of projects, extent of scale of resources. I mean, yeah, my first project, I had everybody in one, one building, you know, I could, I could go get my entire project team and talk to them. That doesn't happen these days. Um, and that is that has only been accelerated through the whole COVID situation, you know, the kind of even more of the remote working and projects starting where project team members just are never going to meet in a physical way. So if we think about people listening now, hopefully we didn't drop them all when we had our technology challenges at the beginning, but they'll play the podcast back anyway. Yeah. You know, if you're a new project manager out there, what what's and you're on this topic, right, about how we need to work with people better. What's your best advice for them? How do you help steer them in the right path? I think what first thing is awareness, and that's that's one of the things I've, you know, that's why I've been talking about it so much, you know, making, making people aware of it. I mean, I've always said if you're a, if you're a you know, if you're a green bean, if you're a, if you're a new project manager coming on, on board, I mean, it's really important for you to try and find, you know, if you like, a, a, a safe haven to, to play in to start with, to to get to understand stuff. And I think that's one of the powers of PMOs that they, they really can nurture new project managers and give them that kind of support network. And I think, you know, having a, a mentor uh, or a coach out there is, is, is brilliant as well. And, you know, that's, you know, that would, for me would be a call to action for, you know, all the old, um, you know, older project managers, mature project managers out there is, yeah, your job is not just delivering your projects. Your job is to, is to think about the next generation. And to reach out to that. And, you know, I know projects are tough. And I know it takes a whole bunch of your time, but, you you know, we need to think about next generation and the generation after that, the young kids coming in. So I think any anybody who's starting out in project management, one, grab the community that's out there. It's huge. I mean, we've got stuff like, you know, your great show. We've got uh, books. They've got blogs. They've got conferences online. I mean, there's so much you know, online now. You could connect to pretty much anybody in the world of project management to tools like LinkedIn. Don't be shy. Reach out there, connect to people, find those people that are going to help you and influence you uh, being successful. And inside your, the organization you're working for, you know, what is that safe haven? What is that support network? Go and find it. Go and talk to the PMO. Go and, talk, go and find yourself a, you know, a buddy or a, you know, a mentor or whatever. Yeah, we had uh, Priya Patra on our last show, and she was oh, talking yeah, about Priya. Yeah, the different communities she's building, right? Uh, getting the PMI chapters from around the world to engage with one another. Um, mm -hmm. and, and how her career, she was a more quiet, reserved leader. And she attended some sessions within her own organization where they had uh, a project management community. And she's come out of her shell, right? She's not quiet anymore. Um, no. and, and that's where you can really benefit from that. Uh, Bill Dow, yesterday I was chatting with him. Uh, and he had also talked about within PMOs he's built, he now creates stuff like buddy systems, right? Where it, it pairs the junior PM with a senior PM. Right. Any, right. any sort of, uh, for the PMO leader that's out there, right? Who 
may not really have had any training on how to lead a department or run a function. They may have been a good project manager, got promoted, and now they're like, oh, no, what do I do? Yeah. What, what's some guidance for them on how to, to lead their team and, and get this sort of mentoring and community building concept going? Yeah, I, mean, I think, I mean, this is, yeah, it's one of the areas that I do, you know, I do training or I do coaching of, of PMO leaders in because that's, it's not an uncommon situation for people to be in. You know, I mean, despite the fact that PMOs have been around for a long time, there's still many organizations that are just building their very first PMO. Um, you know, I, I did that book, The Leading Successful PMOs, and I researched what made for a good leader. At the heart of it is that it's someone who's, you know, you've got to, you've got to be passionate about projects. You know, you've got to have a project background of some form. You've got to have that understanding that projects are just different. On top of that, you know, you've got to be a great communicator, a great negotiator. And, you know, fundamentally, you've, you've, not, you've got to not be afraid to be different, to be unique. One of the mistakes I see in PMOs is someone tries to take a PMO and, and, you know, just like a standard model and shove it into an organization. It's not going to work. Every PMO that is different. Every PMO needs to be subtly different for the organization's need at this point, and it needs to be flexible for changes that are coming in the very near future as well. So I think, you know, get help if you, if you know, there's, there's again, there's some great community communities out there. There are people, you know, like me that will, will coach and guide you, et cetera. I think that's really important. Going kind of back to your previous point, if I may, in, you know, what else, it's kind of what else can all PMO leaders do? Yeah, they can, they can, they can help run the support system for new project managers, but I see a huge increase in what I call the, um, if you like the the informal project managers, this is a community. So if you imagine you've got an organization, you've got you've got your business as usual at the lower level. This is stuff that your organization just does. Yeah. It's why you exist. And then you've got your project managers. Projects as projects. These are dedicated, high risk, challenging things that you need a you need a project manager, professional project manager for. But well, in the middle, there's something I call projects as usual. This is where people in business are being asked to deliver smaller changes, lower risk changes as part of their day job. And that I see as a massive growing community. And I, I would argue and, and you know, request that every PMO leader reaches out to this group um, and offers some guidance. They do not need your methodology. They do not need your standards, your tools, or anything like that. They need some guidance, some basics. And yeah, project management for non-project managers. And I think that's, you know, again, what are you going to get? You're going to get great supporters of your PMO. You're going to get great future project managers, perhaps. You're going to get less disruption inside the organization because of small changes going wrong. I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was one of them, right? I, you know, I talked to, I don't know, this is show 65 or 66. We've had over 100 different guests on the show, and I bet the majority of them started out as an accidental project manager. You know, I was running a project, was not in a role of a project manager. My boss said, hey, how's the project going, Joe? And I said, the what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, but that, that initial conversation led to now a career in project management. And I think you're right. I mean, the amount of work that happens in organizations can't be managed all out of a PMO, right? It, it's just impossible. So how do we help those people be successful and help the organization be successful? Ultimately, that's the goal. I don't know if you've done it, but I mean, it'd, be, it'd be fascinating for you to go and reach out to, you know, one of the uh, one or two of the uh, young project managers of the year out there, you know, the, whether it be PMI or the IPMA, the young crew of some amazing people. You just listen to them talking about projects, project management, and the passion they have 
you know, I fell into it and I kind of grew, my passion grew. But these these people, they want to be project managers. They're intentional project managers. You know, they're crazy. Yeah, about to say, <laughs> and, uh, they're the crazy you know, ones. They see this as a career or a career step. And, and trust me, you can have some conversation with them and it will be incredibly insightful. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're on video here. So you and I have a bit of gray in our beard. Uh, so yeah. so we've been around the block a couple of times. But uh, we've got Billy Moape coming on uh, our first show next year. out of of Zambia. And Billy's one of those guys, right? He is high energy, ready to go, loves project management. And I'm super excited for that talk just to to see what he's, what's his view, right? What's his view of the world? It's different than ours. And I enjoy that. Yeah. The book, we may not be able to mention the title. It's the the big pink book. There was a project management. It's all blank, blank, blank. (laughs) Um, I wrote that with a lady called Susie Palmer True, and she is astonishingly, exhaustingly passionate about change. <laughs> and I wrote it with her because I want—I really wanted to be challenged. I was kind of thinking, oh, I don't know, can I write any more books? And I kind of, have I said it all? And then we met up at a conference in Athens, and she was just so stimulating and energy and just all of it. And it was just an amazing experience writing. And, you know, I was kind of challenged to project management to sort yourself out and, and you know, go get back to the real important stuff. Yeah, I'm uh, one of the roles I've taken on this year is managing director of the PMO Global Survey, right? And as you've talked a couple of oh. times about research, um, we had our first survey come out this year and we'll be publishing the results later in the year. Uh, but we asked about one, do you have a coach? Uh, and the numbers are really, really low for PMO leaders who have a coach. We asked what their role was before becoming a PMO leader and the great majority were project managers who got promoted into the role. And then we ask how many of you are, are work within the accidental project management role within your community or within your organization. And everyone has accidental project managers and very few of them work with them. So a lot of the topics that you've hit on today, there's, you know, we'll be coming out with some data to support all of your own personal research and findings on these topics, that this is the wave of the future, right? I mean, uh, project management and the project economy is going to put uh, the spotlight on the folks who are doing these accidental projects, or as you call them, projects as usual. Projects as usual, yeah. We've got to give them the tools, right, to help them be successful, but without inundating them, right? We don't want to smother yeah, you don't them. Want stuff because that would just kill them. You know, you need the lightest of light. You know, the, the five or six or seven really critical things they need to be doing and thinking about. And I think back to when you and I were a little bit younger in our career, right? When there would be shadow IT departments, right? The 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 guy in the marketing department who had a server under his desk and wanted to get his uh, communications out. And or IT departments would always work to shut them down. Or the folks who had their own personal phone uh, that they were getting emails on, right? And now who doesn't have their own personal phone they're getting work emails on, right? It's the evolution of our industry to be able to do this. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I saw a great thing um, Yeah, yesterday, actually. One of the, you know, 20 years ago, what do we have? It's got the old record player and the old sort of phone and all the old equipment. It's like a mountain around this guy. It's like, it's now here. It's all in our hand there. Oh, I just turned the light on. That was impressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, the, the power of our fingertips. And that's why I go back to AI. You know, you're gonna, you, you know as a project manager, you're going to be walking around with one of these things and it's going to be alerting you. It's going to give you a predictive analysis of how your projects are going and who you should be talking to and what you should be looking at. And it allow you to spend the time with the people to make it even more successful, to kind of raise those levels you talked about, the 50% success rates, climbing. They're going to climb. 
are there any specific AI things that you can talk about this time that kind of have you jazzed more than something else? Is, is uh, what's you know kind of what is your vision of where AI is going to really make the most impact? Well, I think it's, it's all those levels. If you like, it's already started the process automation, automating some of the, the tasks that you need to do. Um, the chat box are going to be appearing everywhere. The, you know, the, the little help that's going to pop up and suggest stuff and guide you on stuff and think you should be looking over there. You know, the kind of management by exception is going to grow. Um, and that's going to be in all areas of, of, of project management you know, from start to finish. And then, you know, the one I'm, the one I'm really putting all, all, you know, my personal effort in is, is this whole team alignment thing. And it's just, you know, that, that to me just seems to be one of the really significant things. We spent all of our time, you know, we have a lot of data on, you know, where is the project, what status is it at, you know, the budgetary stuff, you know, the task completion, all that kind of stuff. Really important. But we have very little data on what, how the people feel. What, what's the mood? What's the sentiment of that, of the team, you know? Do they care? Do they not care? Are they talking to each other? Are they collaborating? Are they just grudgingly cooperating? Or they, yeah, that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, that for me is is just mind blowing, exciting, um, and it's you know it's not Big Brother. It's it's not that. It's truly gained the insight. And I've seen, you know I've seen it. I've run so many you know Zoom and Team webinars and stuff recently. And I use a tool called Menting for, for which is a just a brilliant tool for getting insight and comment from people and polls and quizzes and stuff like that. And I've just seen that if, you know when people don't have to necessarily raise their voice or raise their hand. They're contributing, and this is you know this is the power of the many. This is this is the power of the hive mind. This is the the collective objective, and all those great terms that are out there. And I could talk for another hour on that, but it is bringing people together with a common purpose. So, what do you say to the naysayers that say, "Ah, oh, that stuff's all soft skill fluff stuff. That's just people stuff. Doesn't belong in the project management community." Get the hell out of project management. <laughs> Seriously, get the hell up. Listen, if you don't like people, if you don't think people are that really critical to project management success, then go find something else to do, you know? <laughs> it, no, it isn't. It's, it's, it's critical. And the trouble is, I think, you know, so many people have got so buried in the process, so buried in the methodology, so buried in the, in the tracking and all that. And it, it removes you from people, and you can look very busy doing that stuff. Yeah, it doesn't deliver, I don't believe. It just doesn't deliver. You might have been lucky. I'm not saying people aren't lucky. You know, project managers, they can be lucky. They can have a success, another success, and nothing goes wrong. But as soon as they hit a real problem, then that's when it happens. And, you know, I worked for an organization, and we experimented with remote project managers, you know, low-end, small, almost repeatable projects of technology. And it worked. We could train these kind of graduates up, and they worked pretty well until there was a problem. As soon as it deviated from the workflow, they were they they had nowhere to go, and that was that was the big problem. Yeah, and we've uh, I'm with you on this, right? Uh, we've had guests like Ruth Pierce and Dr. Barbara Troutline and Steve Fulmer and and others who talk about the people side of. Uh, they don't even really call it project management, so say, uh, but they're focused on people, right, and understanding. The the pat or um, Carol Osterwheel, a, another one out of the UK, right, talking about how the brain works and how to interact with people and how to be successful with those lines. And I think we have to explore. Like I said, we've got to do something different if we want to get different results. Uh, building a schedule is important, but getting the team members to actually do their work and be effective and enjoy what they're doing is it has to be more important, right? Every project only exists because of the people we have on them. 
I'm sure you've seen it. If you've got a great team working together, they will overcome all the limitations of rubbish process, difficult divorce, <laughs> uh, and all, you know, all those stuff. I'm not saying we shouldn't make it as easy as possible and sort that out as well. But people will generally overcome all of these issues. And if they truly believe in what they're, what they're actually trying to do, what we, you know, the, the visibility of purpose, as I call it, you know, if they, if they believe in it, they, they will work hard to make it, make it successful and they'll overcome every obstacle possible. Now, yes, you should go back and go, well, let's not try and repeat that. That was difficult. Let's make it, it's, it's eased away for the next project, all of that. But no, it's about people. Yeah, and and again, I our signature service with the PMO squad is the purpose-driven PMO. So for us, mm-hmm. it, it's the same thing, right? It, as you pointed out, every PMO and every company is going to be different. Uh, but you can build a framework around it that says the first step should be identify why you're different, right? What is your purpose? Uh, yeah. And once you have that and people adapt to it and buy into it, now you've got a motivated workforce. Yeah, I, you know, I talk about the balanced PMO, the five Ps. Um, there's a lot of P's in our world. I know that. I know. Um, Too many. You know, and, and the five P's for me, are, it's about people and process. It's about performance and promotion, about the project's information systems. And the first critical balance is the balance between people and process. If you spend too much time on process, you're the, you're the project police. And trust me, you know, you will not be popular. People right. will not like you. It's a miserable place to be. Because if you spend all your time on people, it's too soft and fluffy and, and not great. So you've got to get that balance right. And, and that's, you know, it's two of the five Ps are, are critical in, in the balanced PMO, I believe. Yeah. And, and then throw in project and portfolio and program and, and all the other Ps. And, and we, oh, we took yeah. it that way and said uh, PMO now equals purpose measure optimize, right? If you, if you define your purpose, you measure how well you're achieving it. And then you optimize to ensure you achieve mm-hmm. it. We don't have to put the labels on uh, a project and uh, program or portfolio. You know, I you know, I, I <laughs> I've started joking about this, and maybe who knows when it come true. You know, I think we should be having an OMO out there, which is you know, it is actually the uh, the uh, the sort of the outcome management office. It's you know, it's this whole you know, measuring yourself on outcome and working back from that. Yeah, and, and maybe we should forget all the P's at some point because it is confusing. I know, you know, so uh, you know, PMO can stand for projects mostly over budget. That's that's, that's, <laughs> our, joke, isn't it? that's our joke. <laughs> I love it. So we're uh, we're in this new world, right? We're in the COVID world. Uh, everybody's working differently. How have you been impacted by this, right? How have you adapted to to this new normal, and and what's different for you? Yeah, well, you know, my Delta Air Miles category is just plummeting. I'm just like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be in luggage when I finally get on a plane again. I think, you know, yeah. I mean, I'd be honest. I mean, you know, I I had a whole whole bunch of stuff lined up. I, you know, I'm fortunate in what I do, and I and I get invited to speak at businesses and conferences, you know, come around April time, you know, that, that just collapsed, um, scarily so for, for a period of time. It's rebuilt, it's, it's, it's climbing up again, but it's, it's all virtual. You know, everything I'm doing is, is remote-based. I've restructured my courses to be virtual uh, using kind of best practice of, you know, nothing more than an hour chunk and blah, break that hour down into, you know, short exercises, short discussions, short presentations, nice coffee breaks, etc. The conferences are all, are all virtual, of course, as well. Um, and, you know, I've started doing some kind of virtual coaching into organizations as well, remote coaching. Um, you just, you know, you learn to adapt. A, a bunch of it was like that anyway, but, the, you know, it's just all of it is like that now. And, and that's just that's just a reality. And I think, you know, be sure, are they? This is the problem. This is not like the financial crash of, what, 2008, something like 2008, 2009. 
Because, I mean, pretty much we were back to normal within six, nine months after that. This, we just don't know. So, you know, all of those events, planners are thinking for 2021, they've no idea what to do. And I just, I think even if we do go back, um, even if we go back to conferences, face-to-face, let's say from the middle to late part of next year, I think that's going to be the earliest possible. I think because of the, the, the advantage people have taken on bigger audiences connecting to these virtual conferences, I think every conference is going to have a mixture. I think, you know, I might be invited out to go and do a keynote on stage in front of 300 people, but I'll probably be invited. They'll either be live recorded or whatever, or I'd be asked to do a virtual part of the conference as well. So we've all got to adapt. We've all got to adapt to this this new world. And and I'm imagining, right, that the AI you're talking about and team performance, we're going to rely more on that because this uh, I think it was probably around August when we stopped thinking that what we were in the middle of wasn't normal and it became, yes. it became yeah. normal, right? So now we're in the new normal and then yes. next, and then next year I think becomes even another new normal because people are going to be like, Oh no, I thought it was going to end in December. You oh, mean, we, yeah. you mean we got to do this again this year? I think that AI stuff's going to be so important, right? Because then we're going to be able to start benefiting from, uh, a year over a year's worth of information and data of how to work this way. Oh God, yeah, I think so. I, it's huge. I think it's, I think it's going to be really huge. And you know, I'd love to talk to anybody about it. And you know, if you're into if you're team performance, then you know, contact me and we can have a great conversation about it. So I think it is, and I think it's, um, yeah, it, as you say, we're in gradual phases of new, new, new normal, etc. You know, we we've dealt with the black swan, and it's just cool. Yeah, it's disrupted our lives. But actually, you know, by our very nature, we will want to get back to some resemblance of what we used to do. We have to get on with life. We have to get on with business and we have to get on with projects. And there's going to be lots of projects out there. So, yeah, take every advantage you possibly can. You had mentioned earlier there's, uh, I think you said, was it 19 books that you've uh, authored so far? Well, number 20 is in manuscript. Yeah, it's just gone. 20 is almost right. So if... If you were to advise uh, PMs out there on here's my library or catalog of work, what would be kind of the number one that you'd pick out for them? Um, and then some follow on. Obviously, you think they're all great because you wrote them and, oh, and they yeah, are. They're all fantastic. Uh, I'm going to mention three because I'm just going to ignore your uh, guidelines. <laughs> I mean, Lazy Project Manager at, at heart is it's the oldest, it's the best, it's the one that talks about project management. If you want to talk about PMOs, it's leading successful PMOs. And if you just want to have some enjoyment in project management, then there's a book called The Project Manager Who Smiled, which is a book on project management fun. And, of course, The 21-Day Challenge, Project List Manager. That's four. I'm greedy. <laughs> well, and, and so what's the new one? What, what, I don't know the if you can... The called Business Agility. Um, it's, it's actually... I didn't predict the, uh, the the crazy times you were in, but, you know, recognizing that organizations are, are operating in a completely different way, the successful ones. It's around business business agility. Um, it's around about, you know, kind of having that flexibility of, of performance and structure to survive in, in, in the new project economy. So, yeah, I mean, it's got a twist about the new normal in it. That's absolutely sure. And it's kind of like a little bit of, you know, good timing. So, yeah, it's, it's out there, and I guess it will be published in the early part of 2021. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with one here that we hadn't talked about in advance, but as a PMO Influencer of the Year, you have a lot of people within our industry that are uh, looking up to you and the work you're doing. But who do you kind of follow or, or collaborate with as your influences that help you shape your kind of your vision and your direction? 
yeah, I guess just, there's just a lot. I mean, you know what? Again, I'm going to go back to what I'd say to people is don't be afraid to reach out to people. I've reached out to so many people. You know, I mean, if I go back when I first started, uh, Dr. Harold Kersner, you know, sort of, you know, really famous person out there in the world of project management. Frank Solanis, the guy who started the International Project Management Day. Yeah, and, and, and I've reached out to them and they have given me their time. And, and so don't be afraid to do that. You know, be respectful of their time and, and their, their workloads, et cetera. Well, I get, I get lots of people contact me. I don't think there is one person I can say, but I am, I'm truly inspired whenever I go to one of the kind of young crew group meetings, the young project managers. It's just like, wow, I, did, I never had that. You know, I was, I was, you know, I was in my mid-30s when I joined, you know, I became into project management. And I, you know, I kind of grew to love it over a period of time. But the, just the, the excitement and the passion of these guys making conscious decisions to focus and study project management, as I said, either as their career or as, or, or as a stepping stone, they're, they're just amazing. And they, they always inspire me. And I'll echo some of that, right? We, um, early on in our, our second season, I had just on a whim reached out to Dr. Kersner and say, hey, I, I run a project management radio show. Would you love to come on? Figuring I would never get an answer back. Um, and he came on and did our show and, and so, uh, honored to have him reach out. Right. And that's what I found with a lot of people within our industry is we all really do want to help each other. Uh, I think we live in a, a time where community, and I think it's actually enhanced now in this COVID world that people just have that thirst to touch people again. Right. And if they can't do it physically, they want to be able to do it emotionally. Um, yeah, so no, I, I agree. I, I have a magical memory. It was in London. I met uh, Dr. Kirsten for the first time. He had connected to me beforehand, and uh, we <laughs> we exchanged books. Now I wrote Lazy Project Manager, which is like that thick. Right. Kirsten wrote a book that I was like, oh, that thick, and he kind of gave me his book, and I floated my book across, which he read on the plane on the way back to America. <laughs> so, but you know, we stayed in contact for for many years, and it is great. Um, if, if, you know, if anybody wants to see some, my favorite presenter on project management, let me answer it that way. is a guy called Stephen Carver in the UK. Um, he's a, he's a lecturer at Cranfield School of Management and he is just brilliant at the way he presents everything to do with change, everything to do with project management. I've seen him so many times. I've been on so many conferences with him and I love it. Even when I see the same presentation he's done sometimes, it, it there's something about him just, I think is a magic. And there are some many others as well. Yeah, that's interesting. That name uh, came up last week. I was talking with somebody and they had mentioned Stephen Carver as well. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, we uh, love Stephen. Yeah, that's a great. So Project Management Global Award, the PMO Global Awards, again, that's coming up um, next week. Uh, I'm assuming that you've taped your session uh, for that. My sessions, my sessions. Yes, so I've got, yeah, there's my keynote presentation and then there's uh, an interview. Rick Morris is doing like a talk show interview with me. Uh, kind of like this, you know, you know, going all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then I then there's a there is a product based one which is around project team performance analytics for the company I'm working with. So I'm fortunate enough to have three sessions on it. Any um, insights you can share uh, about any of the sessions, just to draw people in to let them know yeah, what to well, expect. With Rick it was you know Rick was a, just I said a very open conversation about life, project management, you know, history, you know, the experiences we've had, speaking, writing, all of that. Um, the keynote is going to be very much focused on things that people, stuff we talked about today, actually. It is about the informal project managers. It's about, um, you know, the project team performance analytics. It's about, um, 
you know, working with you know, young project managers, joining it's many things we've covered today, actually, is in, it's kind of like, you know, the PMO, it's the you know, PMO past, present, but mostly future. So it's a little bit of history around, you know, my, my PMOs that I've run uh, through, you know, various organisations like Siemens, Kronos and IBM. Um, and then it's a little bit about the current now situation, which we, you know, we touched on a little bit today. And a little bit about the future, where it's going to go. And it is, you know, kind of explores more of the AI world, the project team analytics and stuff like that. Well, that's awesome. I know I'm looking forward to to your sessions and, and everybody else that's going to be out there. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, what I love, right, is every year they used to have this award ceremony over in London. So yeah. a lot of us couldn't get there, right? I mean, it just, you know, your work schedule, whatever it may be, prevented it. But in this new COVID world we're living into, man, I'm hitting every conference I can, right? The ability to interact with people around the world has just made everything become so close. Everything's at our fingertips now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. encourage everybody to go out. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show today. Apologize for our technical challenges. I hope everybody stayed with us uh, during that time, but it, it uh, looks like it corrected itself, and we had a nice chat. Thank you so much for joining yeah, I us. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much uh, again for inviting me, and uh, hello to everybody out there. And what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? And if you have anything coming up, uh, the books or, or speaking sessions that you want to share with everybody? Yeah, well, you kind of touched on one with Rick. Um, now, if you go to the website, lazyprojectmanager.com, that's a great place to start. You can see I'm on LinkedIn, highly active on LinkedIn, you know, pretty much daily postings out there, so you can always get stuff about what's going on on there. Um, and if you've got any questions or any particular interests, then just, you know, drop me a note uh, through the website or through LinkedIn, and I'll uh, happily come back to you and, um, you know, let's see what we can do. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Peter. And, of course, thank you to all of our listeners. Be sure to visit projectmanagementofficehours.com. Check out all the great content out there and the listing of upcoming shows. Uh, next up, we have Ben Aston joining us from Canada uh, ben is the host of the Digital PM Podcast. Follow that up with Jason Westland, founder of projectmanager.com. Cornelius Fickner, uh, host of the Project Management Podcast. Karen Bondale will be joining us from Canada to finish out the year. And then, as I had mentioned earlier, we start next year with Billy Moape out of Zambia. So really excited about our upcoming guests. We do uh, want to send out a reminder that all of these shows are also recorded. So be sure to subscribe to Project Management Office Hours podcast on Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, whatever your podcast platform of choice. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, the PMO Squad. Visit thepmosquad.com to learn more about the purpose-driven PMO. And that's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Management Office Hours with PMO Joe. You're not alone in your project management journey. We're here to help you achieve your goals. Subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on your favorite podcast platform to catch all of our episodes and hear industry leaders share their story and secrets to success. Hi, welcome to Office Hours, a podcast presented by College Fashionista. It's Amy Levine Klein here. 
This month's episode was with social media star and senior fashion market editor of Refinery29, Alyssa Coscarelli. Alyssa is a real standout individual in the industry. Within minutes of talking to her, you can tell her dedication and passion for her work. I love her energy and can't wait for you all to listen to this episode. It's one of my favorites. So I'm here with Alyssa Coscarelli. Hi, how's it going? Good. It's a disgusting day in New York. I'm not sure why. It's It's a sick joke. I'm so over this weather. (laughs) It's ridiculous, but we're excited. We're cozy inside and we're excited to chat. It's March for our students. They're getting back from spring break and it's like home stretch till Mm -hmm. graduation, till summer kickoff. Oh, I remember that feeling. So close yet so far. Exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, there's just a lot on our students' plates and careers are obviously very top of mind and you are an absolute favorite of our community. Thank you. So I'm excited to pick your brain about how you got to where you are. Yeah, let's do it. Let's take it back to your college days. Where did you go to school and what did you study? So I went to LIM College. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, LIM stands for the Laboratory Institute of Merchandising. So that is what I studied. I majored in fashion merchandising, and it's a private college here in New York City in midtown Manhattan. There's not really a campus per se. It's really just like like four buildings kind of spread out throughout midtown. So really, it was not the typical college experience at all. I remember, you know, going there and looking on my phone on Facebook and seeing all my friends at their first like football games and rushing for sororities. And I didn't have any of that. So on one hand, I think I kind of had FOMO about, you know, those aspects of the college experience. But at the same time, now looking back, I definitely wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, you were able to be in the hustle and bustle of you know, such a fashion-centric city. Exactly. And that's really why I chose that college because of all the opportunities here in New York in the fashion industry. And so I tried my best to take advantage of them. When you were entering college, did you know you wanted to be in fashion? I did, yeah. And I think, you know, I knew I wanted to be in fashion from a really young age. I was that little girl, like, trying on outfits and putting on fashion shows for my family and changing my clothes five times a day. And there was definitely something there early on. Yeah, but I think I just, I didn't have a full understanding of the industry, you know, when I was in middle and early high school. So... I think it kind of had to be worked out. But luckily, I had that basis. I was like, you know, fashion is what I want to do. And LIM actually has a program where you can come when you're still in high school. I think I was a junior or a senior. And you can kind of come visit, stay for a week, stay in the dorms. I stayed in the dorms with my mom for a week. Yes. Um, And (laughs) yeah, I kind of take some little sample courses and that kind of thing. So that's That's what really clarified the decision for me. So once you were at LIM, And you started your courses. Like, how did you determine that you wanted to be a fashion editor and that was the route you were looking to take? Yeah, I really didn't even know specifically that I would be following this editor path until probably my senior year when I started at Refinery. That's interesting. Um, I really just wasn't aware of the editorial path or the market editor path specifically being an option until I started working at Refinery. And it's funny because I always liked writing and that was always kind of my strong subject. I was the one who would never complain if there was like an essay test because I'd be like, yes, I can write my way out of anything. (laughs) So that was always there and the fashion interest was always there. But for whatever reason, I just never put two and two together. And I did work for my college magazine. So that definitely was like the start of it. Once I landed the editorial internship at Refinery, that's when I was like, oh, this is totally what I need to be doing. Do you think that 
having that editorial experience at your student magazine allowed you to get your internship at Refinery29? Definitely. I'm so thankful now looking back that I had that because that was really what I had to show for myself as far as writing goes. And I think, you know, we're so busy in college working on projects and essays, but it's also important to kind of factor in, like, what do I have to show for myself outside of just, you know, my college essays as far as writing goes, whether yeah. that's a personal blog or that's work for a school magazine, it's really important to have, you know, those little samples of your writing and your voice outside of just academics. Yeah, absolutely. And especially probably you were writing fashion stories. So it was very exactly. applicable for Refinery to see like, oh, I like her voice or she understands this. Exactly. And I think at that point, too, I did have the start of whatever my Instagram is now. I did, you know, show Super my fashion star. interest. <laughs> no. I did show my fashion interest on Instagram, I think, even way back when. So I think that combined with those writing samples that I had definitely gave me the upper hand. That makes complete sense. How do you recommend students who aren't based at college in New York City seek out internship opportunities and make connections with brands that they potentially mm-hmm. want to intern or work for? There's so many different routes to do that nowadays. Um, first and foremost, like if you're like me and you know deep down in your heart that New York's where you have to be, like find a way to get there. Work five jobs, save up all your money, <laughs> convince your parents, like do what you have to do. I really do think, you know, even though the fashion industry is kind of not just limited to the typical fashion capitals anymore. I still think New York's the place to be, so I will say that. But outside of that, I would say definitely go to the events in your local area that have to do with your industry, whether that's another blogger holding a meetup or a brand having an event in store. Definitely put yourself out there in the network wherever you are, no matter what city it is or a small town. Um, and also, you know, take advantage of social media. I talk to people on my DMs every single yeah, day. So I try to answer that. as many as I can. And so yeah. if you can form a really thoughtful message on social media, I think sometimes that's worth a try too. I completely agree. I've talked about this in previous episodes, but mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of cold emailing. Yeah. But now I feel like I've transitioned to cold DMing. Yeah, exactly. Just because People are almost on their social accounts more than their email. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you have nothing to lose. But I I also, I love your point about getting sample work while you're in college. And that's something that every college student can do no matter what school they go to. Exactly. Even if it's not your major. Yeah, every school has a student newspaper Mm -hmm. or has some club affiliated with writing or photography, whatever it may be. And so while it might be... It might not be the most glamorous publication just to start developing your voice yeah, is so sure. important and to have a sample because, you know, Refinery and College Hessians and all these organizations get inundated with resumes, oh, but yeah. it's really the samples and something that you can directly say, okay, they get it and this is why I want them in this position Completely. that seals like, the deal. When we're interviewing people, if they have writing samples, whether on other publications or, you know, something they include in their application, that totally sets them apart. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so once you get into the industry, how do you how do you navigate it? Like how have you moved up along the way? Wow, it's gone by so fast, but at the same time, it's been it's definitely been a journey. I think first and foremost, just putting in the work. Like that may be an oversimplistic answer, but I was never chasing money. I was never chasing like quasi-fame. I was never chasing a certain title. I think I just really cared about the work I was doing and still do and felt passionate about it and put that into the work. And I think that shows for itself. And that's something luckily my parents always instilled in me. It was like, do the hard work, do what you love and the rest will follow. And even though it can sound cliche, I think it really is true, especially with my experience over the past few years in New York, 
obviously it's so oversaturated and a lot of people are vying for those same, you know, seats at a fashion show, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's competitive, but take that competitive edge and apply it in a way that you're producing work you're proud of and people will take notice. Yeah. Hard work is hard work. It is what it is. It like is. You got to put in, put in the work, put in the time. It's always surprising to me when I see people in jobs or internships that slack off because it it's frustrating because it's like don't be there if you don't want to be there. Exactly. If you don't want to put in the time or if you don't care about what you're doing because yeah. it brings everyone else down. We just talked about um, graduation timing and kind mm-hmm. of our main pieces of advice for students. And my main advice when I thought about it, and I've given out so much advice over the years, but it's like have infectious energy because that's what people are drawn towards and people want to work in that environment. And I think that if you are connected to what you're doing and you want to work hard and you have that energy, Mm -hmm. like it stands out because it's so insane how many people don't have that. And I think unfortunately our generation has gotten this kind of bad reputation for this like sense of entitlement. And I have seen it firsthand with some of our interns and some of our, you know, lower people at work. And I just kind of think like, prove that stereotype wrong. Just show up with a smile, do the work and you'll go much further. I agree with you. What tools do you use on a regular basis as a digital editor? So day-to-day, Gmail is my lifeblood. I'm living on my email day in and day out. But aside from that, I also spend a lot of time in our CMS, um, which is a content management system. So Refinery29 has a custom CMS, which is the back end where we, you know, where we write our stories, put in the headline, put in that SEO search optimization information. We also use Slack to communicate as a team um, just throughout the day. And we also use a platform called Asana to manage our content calendar. I think Slack and Asana are two that I've noticed our entry-level hires mm-hmm. aren't familiar with, mm-hmm. and they quickly, you know, get updated on those systems because they're almost used at every fashion organization now, yeah. or at least the new ones. So I feel like for our listeners, you know, if you can educate mm-hmm. yourself on Slack and Asana and just understand the basic functionality, because they totally come into play in your workflow, and, and they, they make your life so much easier and more efficient. For sure. And I think just being able to roll with the punches as far as these new kind of tools that come out. Yep. I remember when Asana was first introduced at Refinery, and we were like, oh, what is this? Yes. We just want to use our spreadsheets, like stop trying to teach us this new <laughs> thing. But really, like, we're so thankful for it now that we're all onboarded on it and we know how to use it. It's been a lifesaver. So just be open to those new tools for sure. When you are interviewing interns, what do you look for in candidates? Ooh, this is such a good question. First and foremost, I think something not a lot of people talk about is that I definitely kind of try to read in the first five minutes of an interview is, is this person on brand for the role, for the company, for the for the brand that we're working at or trying to hire for? I think that's really important. Sure, don't judge a book by its cover, but at the same time, kind of do. <laughs> so, you know, I look no, at your how that person is yeah, usually right. How I react to that person the first five minutes, I think, really dictates a lot from there. Anyway, so from there, I think making sure the person is on brand, but also talking to them about their relevant work experience and making sure that they've done their research, I think is the most important thing. So many people come in for interviews at Refinery29 who you can tell have like maybe opened the website one or two times and just like they have a general understanding of what we are and what we stand for, but you can tell they're not up to speed on like current initiatives or, you know, they can't really pull any specific examples of what they've loved on the site or any of our platforms recently. And I just really appreciate when someone's done the work and can bring up some specific examples. Yeah, because 
whether you're hiring an intern or a first-time employer or kind of any employee, you're investing in them. Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure they're invested in you before you make that investment in them. And I think that's just great advice and something that's so simple and easy to prepare prior to an interview. Staying at the same company for four years is pretty atypical for people straight out of college. What are some benefits you've experienced by doing this? Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm, I never thought I would be at a company for this long. It's funny that four years is a long time now, coming from, you know, like our parents <laughs> no, would be like at companies for years. like 20, 30, 40 years. Um, now four years feels like a long time in our field. But benefits of that, I think I really feel comfortable in my role and therefore can experiment a little bit and kind of make my own job, if that makes sense. Kind of like over the years and working at a company like Refinery who really tries to foster all sides of their talent, I've been able to kind of make my role into what it is. And I think that's an advantage that comes with staying somewhere a long time is you're not just boxed in anymore. I think once people realize your talents and your strengths, they're open to whatever you want your role to be or hopefully, you know, a good employer is. Yeah. So I think that's one of the big benefits of staying somewhere. For well, you prove your time. credibility. Exactly. You prove yourself and you're comfortable there and the people know you and know your work and what you stand for. So I think you have a little bit of freedom from there. I completely agree with that. You know, I think we're all kind of always looking at other opportunities, and we almost all love change, our generation. Mm -hmm. But there is so much value in sticking through something and really absolutely just developing with the brand and developing as a person. And something I think is so amazing about you, and I feel like this is only come because you've been there for four years, is that you've almost developed your own brand within Refinery29. You know, and I think that that's just fantastic. Thank you. So through Refinery29 and social media, you've created quite a network of other young, talented, influential women in the industry. How important has that network been to you on a personal and professional level? Oh, my gosh. On both levels, personal and professional, my network is everything to me. And, you know, the prime example is the fact that my very best friend is actually the young woman who hired me to Refinery29 way back when. So her name's Lauren. She was my boss at the time. It was a very professional relationship at first. Um, Eventually, a year or two later, she moved on. And it was actually once she left Refinery that we kind of had that realization, wait, we want to be friends. We want to get coffee. We want to hang out. Um, Now that you're not my boss anymore, we can just be friends. Yeah. Um, And even when you are still working with someone, I think there's like a friendship level that you can explore there. So I think there's been a lot of overlap in my two networks, both personal and professional. And I think that works to my advantage in a way. I mean, networking and having a you know, great community is is so important. I feel like that's how I learn about the industry and mm-hmm. learn about the challenges in it and mm-hmm. also what other brands and people are doing well at their company and then how I can implement that into College Fashionista. And it's like that only comes through human interaction. For sure. Um, and yeah, I think that's like your, your network is fantastic. Has there been anyone in particular that's really been influential in your career? I mean, again, back to my friend Lauren Crusoe, she's really been my go-to mentor. She is quite a handful of years older than me. So she's definitely who I'm G-chatting with a work question or a career question. I think it's so important to find that mentor slash friend that can be, you know, you guys can have fun and get brunch and go shopping, but you can also get serious and have a real career-related conversation with them too. It's so important. Okay, let's switch gears. We're just coming off of Fashion Month, and you are obviously at a lot of shows, and we loved following your street style looks. What do you think is the biggest value that you get out of attending Fashion Week shows and events? 
It's interesting because I think Fashion Week doesn't carry the same purpose or meaning as it once did. All the shows are available online. I could just sit back at my computer and watch the whole thing unfold on the internet if I wanted to. But I think being out there, A, is a great networking opportunity. Just meeting other women in the space, whether even from the U.S. or outside of the U.S., you know, Fashion Week brings in a lot of people from all different walks of the industry and all different parts of the world. So being at those events and at the fashion shows is really a time to put yourself out there and make connections that can actually come in handy down the line. Um, And also just maintaining my relationship with brands, I think, is really important. Also, with the brands that I'm wearing in my daily looks, I think that's really a week where there's a lot of eyes on me. And therefore, I want to be wearing brands that I really care about supporting and brands that I care about giving a platform, whether those are like female brands, indie brands, smaller labels that maybe people don't know about. But yeah, of course, I mean, I care about what I wear to Fashion Week and I put some thought into it and I really want to wear the brands that I love and feel good wearing. Are there any brands in particular that you're really excited about right now? There is one website called W Concept who's been such a great, great team to work with. Um, They carry a ton of brands, mostly from Asia and South Korea, um, but mostly small brands that no one has heard of, which I love because I know no one else is going to be wearing that. No, you get to wear something different and like you get to be the person who discovers it. Yeah, so I love that sense of discovery, um, especially during Fashion Week. So they've been a great one, a go-to for me for Fashion Week dressing. Okay, we'll have to check it out. What excites you most about the changing landscape of the fashion media industry? I think what excites me most about this changing landscape that's always changing is that I'm never going to get bored with my career, frankly. I think someone like Eva Chen is the perfect example. You know, she started out in this traditional publication editorial path at, you know, Lucky Magazine and these print mags. And now she's working at Instagram, you know, and if you would have asked her 10 years ago, like what she would be doing in 10 years, Instagram maybe wasn't even a thing yet. And she wouldn't even know she would be working there. So I think the fact that I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in 10 years and whatever I am maybe doing might not even exist yet. I think that's what's really exciting about our industry. David Carey in the recent Business of Fashion podcast talks about advice for entry level or right out of college students looking to break into the industry, like, you know, what what he recommends. And he's like, summarizes what you just said, like, it is for people who like change, and who don't want to sit in a consistent job or company, because Mm -hmm. every company in the fashion industry keeps changing. And I look at our business, I look at our business, and I sometimes quarter by quarter, we change. Oh, yeah. And week to week. Yeah, week (laughs) to week. And everyone on our team is like, so eager and excited by that movement. But if you are someone who can't stomach that, then fashion likely isn't the right fit for you. Because there are certainly industries that are slower to change mm-hmm. and you can get comfortable and understand it. But, you know, that's that's a part of what I yeah, love about I don't running college fashion he says well is it's yeah. just like always changing. There's no moving. linear path in a fashion career. There's so yeah. many different zigzags and curveballs and you don't really know what you're gonna be doing. I agree. I want to ask you a couple questions from our community members who were so excited that we were having this interview together. So the first one is from Emma Marlowe, and her question is, how often do you get pitches for new brands, products, and what makes a pitch memorable? Man, I'm inundated with pitches day in and day out. My inbox is exploding, both on email and DM, from brands um, near and far and products near and far. I think what makes a pitch stand out to me is when it's not really a pitch at all, when it's more of just, 
hey, you know, say a PR girl has a few different clients. Hey, I'm working with some really exciting clients. I see you've done this, this, and this, and I think I can be of help to you. Do you want to grab a lunch, grab a dinner, grab a coffee, get our nails done? Like, let's meet each other and get that face-to-face connection. I think that's what really makes something stand out to me. And the brands that I work with most are the ones that I have that personal connection with. And when I see their name pop up in my inbox, I'm like, oh, let me open that. Let me see what they're pitching me today. Let me see what they're up to, what they have for me, because I know them and I've worked with them before and I've established a relationship. Um, So I think really, you know, if you're coming from the PR side or the brand side, just knowing to make those personal, meaningful connections in whatever way you choose to do that is really what's most important for standing out. Great advice. Okay, this question is from Sunny Solano. You were majoring in merchandising and got an internship at Refinery29 assisting a contributor. Can you talk about how you managed to do that? Sure. Um, It's kind of a funny story. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed and I was actually looking for an internship at the time because at LIM senior year, um, you have your full-time internship. We call it a co-op. So I was on the hunt for that. And next thing I knew, a friend of mine posted and said, hey, my friend Lauren Caruso works at Refinery29 and needs an intern. Is anyone interested? So I think I commented and said, me, 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 pick me. (laughs) Got the interview from there. Um, Again, it's it's sometimes all about who you know. That person connected me to Lauren and we set up an interview um, once she reviewed my material. And I actually was really late to my interview. I went to the wrong address because Refinery had just moved offices. Oh, man. It was pouring rain nasty like it is today. Um, I remember showing up at the wrong place and panicking and calling my dad and saying, I'm soaking wet. I'm late. I'm, I've am i ruined it. I've dropped the ball. My dream internship is totally off the table. But luckily, I guess Lauren saw something in me regardless <laughs> and... Somehow I got it anyway. I don't know. One of those universe things, I guess. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that's the worst when everything just goes wrong on yeah. such an important day. <laughs> exactly. Well, this has been so fantastic. I really appreciate all of your insight, and we're such huge fans of yours. And thank, thank you, you. That for means taking so time. much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's a wrap. A huge thanks to Alyssa for joining us on College Fashionista's Office Hours. Thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. We will see you all next month for a very exciting guest. Bye. Thanks for listening. again next time when we will be back with more tips, techniques, and cheats to achieve the rewards that you deserve. Thank you so much for your time today. And please, set your podcatcher so that you never, ever miss us. Bye for now. And thanks so much for listening.